0: You
1: are listening to The Flagship Podcast with your host, Joe Lanza.
0: If this story
2: was any good, maybe you people would understand it. You don't even understand the story. It's all, it goes over everybody's head. How great can it be? Maybe they need to talk more during these matches. Rich Craig. This is my entire life's goal is to be a WWE superstar, and now I am the NXT Women's Champion. You can take that. If you want that, great. Good for you. I want to, to talk about getting roadhead. You know what I mean? Like, that's what I want out of my wrestling. Call me old-fashioned, Joe. It is the best wrestling podcast in the world. It is the flagship podcast. I am Joe. Once again, Rich is still gallivanting around Scandinavia or wherever it is. He is on his latest vacation, so it'll be a Joe Lanza uh, solo adventure, flying solo here for the second week in a row. We got a bunch of topics to get to. This should be a big show. I don't know how long I'm going to go. I don't know how long uh, your. are Audio file is at the end of the day for this one, but we've got to get to AEW Wrestle Dream and preview that big pay per view coming up this weekend in Seattle. Later on, we'll take a look at New Japan's Destruction Tour, including some of the matches that took place during the meat of the tour, plus obviously the review of Destruction in Kobe and a little preview of Destruction in uh, Rio Goku, is what they are calling that one. Not destruction in Tokyo. Unfortunately, not destruction in Bipu. But Ryu Goku as they wrap up the tour in Sumo Hall. So we'll talk about that. NXT has a premium live event this weekend. No Mercy. So we'll take a look at the NXT No Mercy card coming up this weekend. That Rich will be back Just in time to review next week. I'm sure he's looking forward to that. We'll take a look at a couple WWE talent cuts that did not make it uh, to the show last week because they happened after I recorded the show. So uh, Matt Riddle, talk on this week's flagship and what I see for his future prospects. And then we will take a look at the career of Bart Sawyer, who passed away this week. Not Brett Sawyer who we talked about last week, but this is Bart Sawyer, two guys who, aside from having similar names, had very similar careers. And unfortunately, due to passing within uh, three or four days of one another, because of the really scary similarities in their careers and the fact that they both used the same worked last name, uh, they may be forever confused with one another. But we will talk about the career of Bart Sawyer, who passed away on September 12th at the age of, I wanna say 57. Yes, he was 57 years old. So we we'll get to Bart Sawyer at some point in the show as well, and uh, maybe a couple other odds and ends along the way. But of course, we have to start with Wrestle Dream, the big pay per view coming up this Sunday, October 1st in Seattle, AEW Wrestle Dream. There will be an instant reaction live. For AEW Wrestle Dream, as we do for all the AEW pay per views. Rich Craich will be back home in time for the show. And on Sunday night, there will be an instant reaction live. So subscribe now. Get on that $10 tier. If you're not a subscriber, that'll be on the $10 tier. All live instant reactions are on the $10 tier. If you are on the $5 tier or the $1 tier and you want to hear the live instant reaction for Wrestle Dream, your only opportunity to hear Rich and I review the show. We're not going to do it on the flagship the following week. When we do the Instant Reaction Lives, that's the one and only time that we're going to review whatever it is we happen to be reviewing. So if you want to hear us review Wrestle Dream, you're going to have to get on that $10 tier before Sunday. Just do it now. Don't make it an impulse buy. Don't make it hard on yourself. You're going to put it off. You're going to watch the pay-per-view. It's an AEW pay-per-view, so you know it's going to be newsworthy. You know it's probably going to be great. There's probably going to be a lot of shit happening. And you're going to want to hear a breakdown of that. And you're going to be all juiced up on Sunday night after the show and excited. And you're going to go, you know what? I want to hear the instant reaction live. And then you're going to be scrambling to your device to subscribe to the thing when you could just get it over with right now. You could just slap pause on this show that you're listening to. Go handle that. Go subscribe. Get on that $10 tier, and that's taken care of. You don't have to worry about it. Then you just have to sit down, watch the pay per view on Sunday, watch Brian Danielson and Zach Sabre Jr., you know, watch MJF by himself uh, start tearing through the tag team division, and, and then you just relax. And you know, when the show is over, immediately following, you know, a couple minutes after it's over, you're gonna hear me screaming in your ear, you're gonna hear Rich Crate screaming in your ear. We're probably gonna talk about how it's one of the greatest pay per views we've ever seen. Which is often the case with these AEW pay-per-views. Or maybe it'll fucking stink. And it'll be an interesting review from that standpoint. Either way, just take care of it now. Subscribe. $10 tier. Instant Reaction Live and what that $10 will give you. is for the entire month of October. Since the show was on the 1st. You'll have 30 days of $10 access. Meaning you will have access to every single thing we do. Behind that paywall both in the month of October and that we have ever done. It'll unlock everything that we've ever done or that we will ever do. Unless we add another price tier at some point. Which it might be time to try to talk Rich into that. But, for the time being, it will give you access to everything we have ever done and everything we will ever do tentatively. Um, Anyway, that's enough of the Flagship, Patreon, commercial. Let's get to the show. And we start with WrestleDream, and we have to start with the business of WrestleDream. Let's talk about that for a second, because, uh, look, the ticket sales aren't great for this show. As I record this, it's Thursday afternoon. The latest update is there was 5,610 tickets out for this Wrestle Dream show, it, uh, it is currently set up for just over seventy five hundred tickets or seats, rather. The last time they were in Seattle at the Climate Pledge Arena, that is the most Seattle sounding name for a venue, the Climate Pledge Arena. That was for a dynamite in January, if you recall. That was uh, Samoa Joe versus Darby Allen. Uh, Ricky Starks versus Chris Jericho was on that show. Those were some of the bigger matches on that uh, Dynamite in January at the Climate Pledge Arena. You know what? I may as well just give you the, uh, the whole show here. If you give me a second to pull that up. But the last time that AW was in Broomfield, they did 9,120. That was the attendance of that, uh, of that show in Broomfield. Now, you might want to say, all right, well, that was the first time in the market. That's true. That's absolutely true. You might want to say uh, that it was a pretty big dynamite. Now, I would I would agree with that. You know, it wasn't, um, to my recollection, a named dynamite. No, it wasn't one of these dynamites where it's a named dynamite. Let me double check that. I don't want to be wrong. Actually, it was. No, it was not. New Year's Smash was actually uh, the week before in Broomfield, where, uh, where, where this week's dynamite was held. And I'll get to that in a second. The Seattle dynamite. Was on the same day as Wrestle Kingdom. It was January fourth in Seattle because, if you recall, that's why a lot of people felt that Brian Danielson wasn't ultimately going to be on on that year's Wrestle Kingdom card because they had this big dynamite in first time market in Seattle, and you're going to want Brian Danielson on that show. And uh, he did work a match. He he beat Tony Nese in a squash. He was in the middle of that story he was doing where he was just beating the shit out of people. Uh, Ricky Starks beat Chris Jericho on that show, and and Darby Allen. That's where he won the uh, TNT title back from Samoa Joe, and uh, what was a great match and a great feud that those two had. There was a Swerve Strickland versus A R Fox match. Jade Car and Red Velvet versus uh, Kira Hogan and Sky Blue. Uh, according to Cage Match, I, I know you'll be shocked to hear this, but that was the worst match on the show. And the acclaimed defeated uh, Jay Lethal and Jeff Jarrett in a a tag team title match on that show as well. That show drew 9,121 fans. We're back in Seattle for a pay-per-view, which look, you know, I understand that was a pretty big dynamite in the first time in the market, but you would think that for a pay-per-view you would at least approach that number? Is that too much to ask? 5,610 tickets distributed to this point. I mean, they're not even gonna sniff. Ninety-one hundred fans, even if they put on an all-out media blitz, start doing bogo's. I know there's a there's some they've 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 actually rolled out some discounted ticket deals already, as we're a couple days out from the show. Um, so even if they do what they did for Arthur Ashe a couple of weeks ago, and they start giving away tickets for five dollars, doing bogo's, uh, marking down the tickets dramatically, which is what they, this is how AEW does business these days. They they, uh, they have more expensive tickets than ever before. And then they mark them down dramatically before the shows. And then they scramble to get people in these buildings. For Arthur Ashe, that strategy works to the extent that they avoided a very embarrassing situation where they had 6,500 tickets sold about a week out. And then uh, through uh, lots of papering, through lots of $5 tickets, which is essentially papering, uh, you know, through seat filler sites, through, uh, you know, uh, Bogos and and various ticket deals, they and, and and comps and straight up comps. They did manage to get about eleven thousand human beings into the building for the show, to where they avoided embarrassment. Uh, was Arthur Ash a bomb? You can't call it a bomb. You have eleven thousand people at a wrestling show. Uh, a lot of them paid. You can't call that a bomb. Was it a success? Is it a feather in the cap of uh, MJF's drawing power? No, absolutely not. It you know it, you're down from the year before. You know, they did thirteen thousand the year before in Arthur Ashe, and that was considered a little disappointing, being down from the twenty-one thousand they did the year prior to that. So when you're almost fifty percent down from two years earlier, no, you can't call it a success. The show didn't bomb, but I can't sit here and tell you that that was a massive success either. Especially when you have to scramble in the days leading up to get his, you know, and do whatever it takes to get people in the building. So it's not a total embarrassment, right? They avoided showing you those upper decks where nobody was sitting, but it still looked like a healthy, vibrant building. Now, uh, here in Seattle, you know, we're, what, three days out as I record this. Maybe they get, I mean, I would be, maybe there'll be 7,000 people, maybe in the building, maybe. Maybe if they do what they did for Arthur Ashe and paper it and give away tickets and for $5 and everything else. 9,100 the first time in the market. Look, we know they're having trouble selling tickets. Just look at Dynamite this week in Broomfield, Colorado. 2,922 was the final number of tickets distributed according to WrestleTix, which are usually, they're pretty accurate. We all agree on that. So tickets distributed, 2,922. How many sold? Turnstile counts. We're not getting into that. 2,922 tickets distributed for last night's dynamite. Last time in Broomfield, December, almost exactly 9 months earlier. So, this isn't returning to the market uh too soon or any of that nonsense that we hear about. Last December in Broomfield, the attendance for that show was 4229. 4229. 2922 tickets distributed last night. And this is the same story in a lot of markets for AEW right now. They are struggling to put people in these buildings for these shows. Okay? And yeah, I think most people recognize that. I think there might be still some people with their head in the sand or some people who, um, you know, coming up with every... Uh, contrived reason why that is, the high ticket prices, which is absolute nonsense. You can, yes, they have raised their ticket prices. You can also get into any of these shows, any of these shows for $20 or less. Any one of them. If there's a will, there's a way. If ticket prices, ticket prices cannot be your barrier when you can get into any one of these shows for $20. And that's a fact. You can look it up. Okay. Uh and 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 I'm not necessarily moved by the idea that AEW floor seats are 70 80 bucks now when UFC goes to MSG the cheapest ticket in the building is $900 and they're going to have a standing room only crowd. I'm not going to be moved by $70 AEW floor seats or $100 AEW floor seats which isn't a reasonable price for an event ticket these days even if it was more than they were charging before with what Taylor Swift is charging for her shows and selling out every, every single... Now, is it fair to compare AEW to Taylor Swift? Is it apples to apples? It isn't. I went to a baseball game this summer uh, with my family and we spent, uh, for decent seats, uh, you know, 500 $600 to get in the door. I mean, this idea that AEW is just too expensive for people when, quite frankly... It's one of the cheapest entertainment tickets there is for big time events. Doesn't hold up the scrutiny for me. Doesn't have a minor effect. Sure it does. Sure it does. But you could still get into these buildings for 20 bucks. BOGOs, family packs, $5 seat fillers. There's They, they, they slash these tickets down for nearly every show. So, you know, I'm not particularly moved by that. This idea that AEW, oh, they have terrible local promotion. That's why they're not selling tickets right now. It's the local promotion. Well, in 2021, when the company was hot, did, did wasn't it the same team doing the local promotion or, or did they fire an entire department from the company that I'm not aware of? If anything, the office is bigger now and more expansive than it was two years ago. So uh, how was it in 2021 that they were hot and selling tickets? And nobody was uh, paying attention to the the local promotion. Deficiencies in the company. Okay. Uh, The bottom line is this. If it's a hot product, there'd be people in the buildings. If it's a hot product, there'd be people in the buildings. Here's your get-in price for... These shows. Collision this Friday $2550. Wrestle Dream 3550. Dynamite in the Stockton Arena on 104, $10. Collision in Salt Lake City on 10-7, $26. Dynamite Title Tuesday in where is that? Independence, Missouri on the 10th, $24. Collision on the 14th in Toledo, $20. Dynamite in uh rosen what is this rosenberg texas on the 18th 20 dollars collision fedex forum in memphis thirty-four twenty. dynamite in philadelphia on the 25th of october 20 dollars dynamite in louisville on uh november 1st 20 dollars collision in wichita kansas november 4th 20 dollars i can keep going Spare me the exorbitant cost of these tickets, please. You want to go to the show? You can get in for 20 bucks. 20 bucks. You want to go to the Stockton Arena next week? You can get in for 10 bucks. You want to go to a pay-per-view this weekend, you get a ticket for 35 bucks. That's the local product. They have lousy local promotion. Why, what, why was no one talking about their lousy local promotion when they were hot in 2021? The bottom line is this, and I don't know why some people are so defensive about this. The company just doesn't have hot programs right now that are moving tickets. That's the bottom line. If they did, the tickets would move. They'd have more people in these buildings. That's the bottom line. That's the way it's always been in pro wrestling historically. Anything else? I'm not saying that their local promotion isn't potentially an issue. I'm not saying the raised ticket prices. But these are marginal issues. These aren't the big picture reasons why AEW is having is having trouble selling tickets and have been trouble having selling for months and months and months now. These are ancillary. These aren't primary reasons. Now, as far as the pay-per-view buys, I think the pay-per-view is going to do well. Why? AEW pay-per-views always do well. Pay-per-view is not their issue. I think it's people know they're going to get a great show. You almost always get a great show. You're going to get one of the best shows of the year. And people know that now. And they don't want to miss out on that. And then when people don't buy it and they miss out, AW does very strong replay numbers for their pay per view shows because the pay per views are so good. So, the pay per view business, you know, they're doing fine there. There's no issues with their pay per view business. Their television ratings are okay. They're not great, they're not blowing the doors off. Some weeks they do uh, pretty strong numbers considering competition and. And those sorts of and and some weeks they do okay. I mean, I have no complaints about the ratings, but I also don't think that they're doing phenomenal television ratings either. They're doing okay. They're doing okay. Inside the buildings, people are reacting to what they're seeing, so the people who do come to the shows enjoy them. Typically, there haven't been too many dead crowds or storylines being rejected, but they simply aren't selling a lot of tickets right now. And historically in pro wrestling, that goes back to, you just don't have hot enough programs to sell tickets. You know, that's historically what it, it, it it always comes down to. So, you know, that brings us to the Brochacho line. And the fact that it seems hot in the building, Tony Khan allegedly claims it sells a lot of merch. I'll take his word for it. Um, They pop nice little quarter hours. But the bottom line is this. Last night's a great example. They had 2,922 tickets distributed. And the last time in Broomfield, December, nine months ago. Not a quick turnaround. Not burning out the market. They basically go there once per year. So that's another one of these excuses that we constantly hear. Last year in Broomfield... 4229. And that's a microcosm of what's going on in a lot of these markets. This is pretty common right now. And I just don't know why. And I just don't understand why it seems to be controversial to say, hey, look, this thing on top that gets all of the key television time, that gets the majority of the television time, that gets uh most of the key attention on television is clearly the hardest push program on the show. And oh, by the way, features the world champion. Really isn't that hot in terms of moving tickets? Why why has that become a controversial thing to say? Why are some hardcore AEW defenders so defensive of the ticket sales right now in relation to the top program in the company? I, I don't understand it. I mean, it's just a fact. Collision right now. Mohegan Sun. Uncasville, Connecticut. This is uh, October 7th. This is next week's collision. 1,691 tickets out. All right, well, that's collision, right? Dynamite, Stockton, October 4th, next week. Tickets distributed, 2,667. October 10th, Title Tuesday, Independence, Missouri. Tickets distributed, and this show is in two weeks. 1,627. Last time in independence, you guys should remember that one. Because I I identify that as when this company's creative started to go downhill. And the quality of the shows. 3,912. 3,912 people in independence back in March. We're back here in October. Some seven months later, 1,600 tickets out. October 18th, Rosenberg, Texas. There's currently 2,000 tickets out. Broomfield, Colorado last night is not the exception. This is now the rule. Wrestle Dream in Seattle. Tricky market historically for major league wrestling to draw in the Pacific Northwest. We get that, but they did 9,000 fans last time. All right, we're comparing it the first time in the market, but once again, this is not the exception. These are becoming the rule. And I'm sorry. I don't care if you don't like hearing this, it is not unfair to point at the top program in the company, the hardest-pushed angle in the company, storyline in the company, that also, by the way, features your world champion and your hardest-pushed star in the company for not popping these ticket sales. It is not catching on with ticket buyers. Do I think that the Brochacho line is running people off from AEW. I don't know if I can say that. But that's a different discussion than it's not drawing money and drawing ticket buyers. That we know is an absolute fact. It's not. It's not. Because earlier this year when ticket sales sales were struggling, there was a point where they were still... You know, beating year over year. And then they were flat year over year. Now they're down year over year in these markets. Now they are down year over year in these markets. The deeper we get into 2023. And this is not doom speak. I don't think anything, you know, A.W. overall strong. They're going to get a new TV deal. I don't have any doubt of that. Their pay-per-view, as I said, does well. Their ratings are, are, are okay. They're not struggling in, uh, in any other area but this is one area of their business where they very clearly are and I don't think it's unfair to try to examine why and historically in pro wrestling what do you look at you look at the top of the card I'm sorry but that's just how this stuff works you get the credit you get the blame it's like being a head coach It's like being a boss. Is it always entirely fair? Maybe not. Are these other things that I'm calling excuses, like the ticket prices, the local marketing, burning out markets, whatever, all these hokey excuses. Do these make marginal differences? Of course they do. But at the end of the day, if something is hot at the top of the card, it's going to draw, regardless of all those other things. All of those other reasons, excuses, no one talks about them. If if something's hot at the top of the card and we're drawing. All of a sudden, all that stuff goes away. It, 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 are, it does not matter most. What matters most is do you have a hot star at the top? Do you have a hot program on top? Do you have things that are clicking? With the ticket buying audience. And right now they do not. And it cannot be argued. It cannot be argued. You know, in our Discord today, I, uh, you know, and, and this, these are well-meaning. A lot of these people are well-meaning. But one person actually said to me, well, you can't look at Arthur Ashe two years ago because it was the first time they were there and they were, they were, they were hot in 2021. Yes, that's my point. They were hot in 2021. My point is that they are not hot now. D- do, do we get it now? Is, does that kind of cut through the disconnect here? That is my point. They are not hot right now. This Brochacho line thing, which people laugh when they're fishing fucking Paul White out of the sea. Gets pops in the buildings, but when the rubber meets the road, we continue to sell less and less tickets. And listen, I am not advocating that they stop doing this storyline. I have never once done that. I don't like it. It doesn't suit my tastes. I don't believe it's as hot as people pretend that it is. But I don't think they should stop. Because it's very clearly the most over thing on these shows. Because nothing is hot. Right? And there's a chance it could catch fire. It took the bloodline two years, two and a half years before it seriously started popping real ratings and drawing real ticket buyers. That coincided with with Sami Zayn getting involved in the story and accidentally getting hot and all of those things. This is not the show to examine the reasons why the bloodline finally caught on, but eventually it did. Eventually it did. It was widely praised for a long time among hardcore WWE fans. It hadn't really captured the attention of anyone outside of that. Sami Zayn gets hot, the bloodline takes off, and they have a super hot, let's call it six-month period. From Sami Zayn through, I don't know, you, you want to extend it long? You want to say from when Sami Zayn got hot at the end of 2022 through, let's say, SummerSlam? Maybe, you know. So let's say it was a, a nine or ten month period where it was red hot. And now we see signs that's cooling off a little bit. Okay? That could happen with this. This could turn around. I'm not saying, that, that's a possibility. And it's not going anywhere. And they're going to keep pushing forward with it. You know, the MJF title reign, there were starting to be whispers that this thing was a bust before the Brochacho line. Lousy year-over-year ratings. You know, the Pillar feud, the Danielson feud that didn't quite do the television ratings. I don't think people thought think that it did. You know, it did it good, but the pay for always do good. The pay for did good, but the pay for always do good. I think that's a different thing. The, the pillar story, which, you know, wasn't good at all. This Brochacho thing. Now, th- this, he needs this. MJF needs this. Because it stopped his title reign from continuing to be considered kind of a bust. So they're going to see it through. And honestly, I, I think they should see it through. I really do believe that. Because it's their best hope for something catching on. Now, for my personal taste, I hate that. But I have to separate those conversations. If it was my personal taste, I would hope that they drop it immediately. Because I can't stand it. More embarrassing pre-tapes last night. This Roderick Strong direction is even worse than the pre-tapes. It's. I feel like Roderick Strong's current presentation is even more embarrassing and worse than the pre-tapes. I can't stand it. But you have to compartmentalize these things if you're going to do a show like this that I do. It's selling merch. The TV ratings are okay. The reactions in the buildings are great. You got to keep doing it and see if the ticket sales follow. Anyway, let's talk about this uh, Wrestle Dream show and preview some of these matches coming up on Sunday. There are 10 matches announced for the show. I don't know if they're going to do pre-show matches. Uh, again, I'm doing this show on Thursday. I know that Renee Paquette and RJ City, uh, AEW has announced that they're doing uh, a pre-show deal, so I, I don't know if it's going to be a Talking Head pre-show or a Wall-to-Wall Matches pre-show. I hope it's Wall-to-Wall Matches. I hate when you do an hour of talking heads. It's a complete waste of time. It, it, it serves no one. Um, I, I think, you know, I don't have data to support this, and maybe they have data internally. I would think that having hot matches in front of a hot crowd would be more enticing to last-minute pay-per-view buyers than Renee Paquette and RJ City standing there giving kayfabe predictions of who's going to win matches. But, you know, maybe I'm wrong about that. I feel like the FOMO, there would be more FOMO created by showing hot matches in front of a hot building and then think, and then people thinking to themselves, man, this show's going to be pretty great. Look how hot this crowd is. There's been some good matches here. You know what? Fuck it. I got nothing going on tonight. I'm going to uh, purchase this show. One thing is it is a Sunday night show during football season, which something that Tony Khan has uh, avoided to this point. So could that affect the pay-per-view buys to some extent? Well, we're going to learn and find out. We're gonna to learn to find out. 10 matches on the show so far. I feel like Brian Danielson, Zack Saber Jr. is going to go on last and is the main event. But the hardest pushed match on television is probably Hangman Page versus Swerve Strickland. What's interesting is um, these two matches feature guys from the area, you know, Swerve Strickland and Brian Danielson. Strickland works the five shows all the time. Brian Danielson's from the area. And the fact that it isn't drawing to this point, uh, let's be honest. We have to call it what it is. That's not very good for either one of those guys. Now, look, Brian Danielson, Zack Saber Jr. is more of a boutique match. It is a uh, it's a vanity match for Brian. It's a vanity match for Zach. It's a vanity match for Tony Khan. It's a match they've been trying to put together for a long time. It hasn't been pushed on TV virtually at all. Uh it's it's a it's a bone to the hardcore wrestling fan, to people like me, to people like you listening. And um, you know, so if you want to give Danielson an out, you know, you've got Strickland near the top of the card with the hangman. Uh, I would I would call those probably the top two matches on the card. Um, you know, Danielson's weird as a draw. It's he's drawn well at times throughout his career, and there's been times where he hasn't been a great draw. He has popped ratings, undoubtedly. For this company, you know the Hangman Page feud did very good uh, television numbers. I thought Collision, the the Texas Death of Ricky Starks this past week, held up very very well against incredible college football competition, uh, and that was a good number. And there have been times that you know, and Brian Danielson has done good pay per view numbers. Obviously, had a lot to do with the with the company explosion in twenty twenty one, along with Punk and Adam Cole, Punk predominantly, but Danielson and Cole absolutely had something to do with that. But then there's times where Danielson doesn't really feel like he's kind of a disappointing draw and you know being on top in this show in Seattle and I understand it's not against an aw opponent there's some mitigating factors there but this is one of those examples where Brian kind of Brian Danielson lets you down a little bit as a draw sometimes you know and I think that's the case here and um you know Strickland too he's a guy who you know, I think uh you know, it's clear the company I think is is preparing him for a top run at some point. Uh, I think there's a decent chance that that eventually happens. They they hint around way too much at this um at Strickland wanting to be the first black champion. Adam Page uh made that point again in his promo last night. So uh you don't constantly bring those things up if you don't at least attempt to um uh to, to to pay at least attempt to pay them off. So I, I and, and the way that Strickland's been pushed, he loses his feuds, but he's always in there with top guys and there's clearly some momentum there and there's there's swelling of fan support. He has a chance to be a top line player. Uh, I think there's things that he needs to clean up. I think that uh his he comes off a little bit. He's finding himself sort of with this gimmick it comes off a little too cartoonish for my taste sometimes. The fake laugh has got to go. It's cringy every time. Someone in our Discord kind of described what's going on with Swerve best uh, when they said he kind of comes across like he's, like he's trying to be a comic book villain sometimes. And I think what Swerve needs to do is incorporate more of himself into his presentation and less of what he thinks this character is supposed to be in his head. And, you know, that sometimes that takes time. There's no rush here. Okay, he could be a top guy. I think now would be too soon. I, I just, there's something missing there that I can't put my finger on and it may just be him continuing to get more comfortable and settling into this role. Remember, this was an absolute bust to start when he had the, the, the dork with the tattoos on his face and, and Parker Bordeaux as part of his crew. That was a total bust. I called that from the start. People said I was wrong and, and you know who turned out right on that one? That was a complete bust. So obviously they dumped that in reverse course. They got Nana in the mix. Brian Cage is a much better fit for him. And, you know, he's they're giving him a chance to cut more promos. I just think we need more of Shane Strickland to come through in the promos and the presentation, and less of sort of this forced swerve Strickland character work that he's doing. It's subtle. I'm not saying he needs to do a complete 180, but I'd like to see more of a real guy. More authenticity is what I'm asking for in his presentation, I guess is what I'm saying. because that that comic book villain comparison was very apt, and it, it's I think that might be what that, that sort of intangible thing that I feel like is preventing him from feeling like a no doubt lock top-of-the-card guy for years that a lot of people think that that he can be. I'm not quite feeling it like a lot of other people are yet with him. But I'm definitely not writing it off. I just think, you know, it takes time sometimes to get comfortable in a role. And, uh, you know, we'll see what happens here. I mean, he could win the match against Hangman. There's no doubt about it. Uh, I think it's high time to get Hangman back into the main event mix, though. I thought the Black Cloud promo, very obviously, and I'm not just saying this because I made the same metaphor or analogy. I always get metaphor and analogy mixed up when it comes to Punk, when I called him a Black Cloud. uh, I'm not just saying it, but to me it was very obvious that Hangman Page was cutting his final promo on CM Punk on Dynamite this week when he talked about that Black Cloud following him around that he couldn't do anything about, he couldn't uh, act on, he couldn't talk about. And finally the black cloud is gone and he feels like a weight is lifted and he can get back to being the hangman. I, I mean, he was talking about CM Punk. He was talking about CM Punk. And he has enough plausible deniability with Tony Khan to where, you know, he can say, "I oh, that wasn't about Punk, but it was about Punk. Because I'm sure everyone's been instructed to not talk about Punk. But that was his way of finally getting some closure on the Punk thing. And getting in his party shot. When he's been nothing but quiet. All the way through. Since the workers rights comment. He has laid low. He has not responded. He has been a professional. And this was. His final shot. At CM Punk. And now CM Punk. You know. Can't really do much about it. Unless he wants to go on Instagram. So. uh, It's an interesting match. It's. It's. A huge spot for Strickland. It's the biggest match of his life. Let's be honest. Danielson, Zach Sabre Jr. Again, Danielson's not losing that. I'd be stunned. He's winning that match. And that's just a hardcore fan dream match scenario. Legitimate dream match people have been waiting for, including the participants, and they're throwing us a bone on that one. FTR versus Aussie Open. look, I don't think Aussie Open ever should have been mixed up with MJF and Cole. And there was ways to avoid that even if you wanted to put the ROH titles on MJF and Cole. You didn't have to have Aussie Open win the ROH titles to begin with, if that was your plan. You could have had another team be the fall guys for MJF and Cole and win that four-way at the ROH pay-per-view. Or you could have had another team beat Aussie Open at some point. Okay, you're the booker. You control this stuff. So I don't want to hear that well, if MJF and Cole are going to win the ROH Tag Team Titles, and that's going to be part of the most important storyline in the company, you know, Aussie Open had to lose. No, they didn't. No, they didn't. If you knew you were going to push Aussie Open at some point, if you think that Kyle Fletcher is a future big-time player, and both of those things are true, by the way. They knew they were going to push Aussie Open at some point, and everyone in the business thinks Kyle Fletcher is a future uh, big-time player. And he's very raw right now, and he's certainly years away from being ready for that. And people say he cuts all these terrible promos and his promos aren't good. Do you know why Kyle Fletcher is given the mic so often in AEW? Because they know that he's a future potential top-line player and they want to get him comfortable talking to live crowds. That's exactly what they should be doing with Kyle Fletcher. Letting him go out there and cut mediocre and bad promos in front of live crowds while he's 24 years old and while he's in a tag team working in the mid-card. Kyle Fletcher is miles ahead of where Will Ospreay was on the microphone at the same age. Miles! Don't worry about Kyle Fletcher. He has time to come around on the mic. Maybe he never will, but he has time. And they're planting those seeds now. And it's smart. And now look at Will Ospreay. It's a great promo. People who think Will Ospreay can't talk, the people who still say that, Or the same people who still think Will Ospreay can't sell. They're the same people who still think Will Ospreay isn't one of the greatest wrestlers in the world. They're people to be ignored. They're people who obviously aren't paying attention or they just hate the guy so much that their heels are dug in. And Kyle Fletcher is miles ahead of Will Ospreay was at the same age in terms of talking on the microphone. Just to give you a little point of comparison. So give it time. My greater point here is... They did not need to be sacrificed to the kangaroo kicks and everything else and the goofiness. And did it bury them? Did it kill them moving forward? No. But was it necessary? No. You could have put any one of a million different tag teams in there. The jericho sammy Guevara match. There was really no reason to have Aussie Open involved in that match with all the other teams on the roster because it wasn't about them. So why have them take all of these embarrassing L's that are part of other people's storylines when you don't have to do that? Right? It doesn't mean that people aren't going to take them seriously moving forward. I think they'll be okay. But why even run the risk? It doesn't make sense. If I plan on pushing someone, call me crazy, I protect those people and they win matches as opposed to losing them in big spots but this is not uncommon for Tony Khan, he did the same, he, does, he often beats people like a drum before he decides to push them, look at Takeshida. the difference there is Takeshida underwent a heel turn and a character change, so you kind of forget about all his losses as a babyface, right, this is a little bit different in that scenario, but the, you know, for whatever reason, Tony feels like It's better to at least have people on TV even if they're losing if you plan on pushing them later because you get them familiarized with the audience. And I get that to an extent. But now that's behind Aussie Open. The Jericho-Sammy match. The dopey shit with MJF. That's behind them. They're being presented in a serious manner again. And they're in there with FTR in a match that could steal the pay-per-view. Because they've had match-of-the-year contender level matches before these two tag teams. And it's not out of the realm of possibility that Aussie Open wins these titles. I don't think they will, but they could. And it could be the best match on the show. MJF versus The Righteous for the ROH tag team titles. Now, this one concerns me. They were throwing a curveball with the Cole injury. They're not going to strip them of the titles. MJF's going to defend them by himself. Does this mean we're in for a Triple H style, early aughts, beating tag teams up and down the roster by himself Cade and Murdoch winning handicap matches against the tag team champions is Max really going to run through a bunch of tag teams on his own and defend these titles doing his goofy 80s shtick I fear that's going to be the case and it's not what I want out of AEW it just isn't more WWE raw bullshit from the mind of Max, Maxwell Jacob Friedman And we've been getting a lot of that lately, obviously. Um, It connects with the people in the buildings. So I just have to take the L and fucking eat shit and live with it. And if you don't like it, you have to also. I would like to be, AEW to be different. I would like, you know, to not emasculate all of your heel tag teams. And for The Righteous, two-on-one, MJF to put up a good fight. But ultimately, he can't come overcome two guys. That's how it should be booked. That'd be different than what the other company does. And MJF would lose no ass. And it would be a good excuse to get those titles off of them. But we'll see what happens here. Am I looking forward to a potential future where MJF, solo ROH tag team champions, runs through all these opposing heel tag teams? I am not looking forward to that. That is going to be terrible. And that is a distinct possibility of where they could be going with all this. Chris Jericho, Kenny Omega, and Kota Bushi versus the Don Callis family. Will Ospreay, Konosuke Takeshita, and uh, Sammy Guvara. Uh, look, this is good for Sammy. I talked about it on the Thursday Dynamite review. You can listen to that on the $5 tier. It's the best Dynamite review in the business. Um, listen, I go hard. I'm going to piss you off some weeks. You're going to nod your head in agreement. You're going to nod your head in agreement and clap and cheer and pump your fist when you agree with what I'm saying. You're going to want to strangle me and bash my face into a fucking wall when you disagree with what I'm saying. Okay? And that's what compelling audio is all about. And that's what you get on the Thursday Dynamite Review. But I talked about Sammy Guevara on the Thursday Dynamite Review and how I think this is good for him. He's much better off as a heel. Uh, Tony Khan could try to make him a babyface top guy. Uh, until, you know, he, he fucking, whatever analogy you want to use, blue in the face. Uh, you know, it's not going to happen because Sammy has a punchable face and Sammy's a much better heel, but, uh, I'm sure he'll turn him again and give it another go. It's not going to work. He's never going to be top guy as a baby face, but, uh, I, I listen, this is a good example. Everything in this match has come together perfectly and it's all been well booked. You can have minor gripes here or there with, uh, minor details, But this is where I want to make the point that I feel like ever since all in and all out, the the, AEW's booking has been, has felt so much more focused and well-planned. Whereas from about the spring, Independence, Missouri, until all in and all out, the booking felt scattershot. It felt like they were going week to week. It felt like they were going by the seat of their pants. Uh, it didn't feel like anything was leading anywhere long term. The booking I felt was a mess. Since those two pay-per-views, I think everything has felt focused and like there's direction. One thing leads to the other, and it feels like there there's there's more long-term planning, step to step, and and with these stories. And that, by the way, includes the Brochacho line stuff, which even though it's not for me and I hate it and I can't fucking stand it. And this Roderick Strong character is going to drive me away from AEW. I swear to fucking God, I hate it that much. Even though I hate the bro-chacho line stuff, I can't sit here and tell you that it doesn't feel organized, well-planned, even with the curveball they got with the Adam Cole injury. And one thing I'll never criticize MJF for... Is not having his ducks in a row and having his shit written down to the finest detail. That you cannot do, even if you don't like what ends up on the screen. That guy gets it from that standpoint. Okay? So everything in this company has been well built and felt and feels focused. Much more so than the previous six months or so. And this match is a good example of that. And I'm genuinely curious where this where this thing goes from here. Takeshita's got the two wins over Kenny Omega. You, you know, Omega does Omega get a win back here? What's next for Will Ospreay, who kind of feels like an odd fit for the Don Callis family? What can from a non storyline point of view can Kota Ibushi look like the old Kota Ibushi again? I am so intrigued by this match. Christian Cage versus Darby Allin, I feel like Darby Allin has to win. And Christian Cage, look, he's got a lot of he's one of these guys who has a lot of his own stroke and writes a lot of his own shit, okay? And uh look, he's a great mind. He is a I know great wrestling mind is like a meme at this point that people say for a lot of people, but he really is a great wrestling mind. He really is. And I love what they've done here. Now he now he really is the champion, right? After the three-way match, which I didn't see that finish coming at all, with him actually coming away with the title, and now it's just perfectly set up for Darby Allen to finish the story and not only get this title back, which has kind of become his title, right? You kind of associate the TNT title with Darby Allen, and he has a chance to get it back, but not from the dinosaur man, from the guy who is the, his real tormentor, and that's Christian Cage. It just all sets up perfectly. I expect Darby Allen to win, and I think he should win unless they have another big angle planned. But I'm excited about it. You can hear it in my voice. You know, I complain a lot about the Brochacho line, and make no mistake, I fucking hate it. I think it's worse than the bloodline. I prefer the bloodline to the Brochacho line. Not even close, actually. Because of, you know, the unfunny comedy and the, the fucking bullshit, the Vince McMahon-style bullshit, I cannot tolerate it. Roderick Strong with his gimmick socks and his hospital gown. Oh, the wheelchair says Hot Rod. It's fucking hilarious. Adam! Adam, I need you! What the fuck is that? What am I watching here? Um, the hell was I talking about? No, but uh, AW uh, there's a lot of good things happening in this company right now outside of the fucking horse shit with MJF. At the uh, at the top of the card. Uh, Eddie Kingston versus Katsuyori Shibata. Was Shibata the mystery challenger from Mox? With the the fucked up, you know, Phoenix match and finish. Whatever happened there. Um, I don't know. So was this an impromptu match? Shibata's on the card anyway. Can't do the Mox match due to Eddie Kingston match. There's a lot of speculation in that direction. But this is the kind of match that might end up being fucking phenomenal. Or can just be a total clash of styles and fall apart. Kingston you know you have to stay away from Shibata's you know with with strikes and and you can't drop this guy in his head you know Um, it's a blessing that we have him it's a blessing he's alive and that he's actually able to wrestle these matches but you know there's precautions that needed to be taken so I don't know how this is gonna work out is he gonna throw a spinning back fist at Shibata and risk you know hitting him with a potato in the fucking cranium I don't know This is for both titles, by the way. The ROH world title and the strong title. Both of Kingston's titles, I should say. The pure title isn't on the line here. Statlander, Julia Hart. I'll say this about Julia Hart. I'll say this about Julia Hart. I think she's improving. You know, it's... I don't think she's that bad. And they, they... Put her on this long winning streak, right? And this is a pretty well-built match for this TBS title. Now, outside of MJF versus The Righteous, it's the match I'm looking forward to the least. I'm not going to lie to you. But I'm not dreading it like I would like some Jade Cargill pay-per-view match where you're like, oh God, they're shoehorning this in. It's going to be terrible. Let's hope it's under five minutes. I'm not dreading it like having to watch Soraya or something like that. Because of that, again, this Julia Hart push has been very well done and feels like it's been a good long-term plan. It's not time for Statlander to lose, though. I don't think it's time for Statlander to lose, but, uh, but we'll see. And Julia Hart, you know, she's spitting Sky Blue's face. Is Sky Blue gonna, you know... Join the fucking uh, you know, hot topic crew after getting you know the, the 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 mist in the face like like Hart did when she was a cheerleader. I don't know. The four way tag match for a future AEW championship match: Young Bucks, Guns, Lucha Brothers, Orange Cassidy, and Hook. That's gonna be a spot fest, and it should be a lot of fun. And you know, now that the Young Bucks, you know, they said they're getting refocused in the tag team division after, you know, the trios run with Kenny Omega. But now they're ROH trios champions with the hangman. And now, uh, Nick Jackson is in line for an international title shot. So there's a lot going on with the Bucks, right? I don't mind it. I'm not complaining about it, but there's more of a Bucks presence on the TV shows now. And that's uh, a positive, you know, there's a company where, a lot of the stars inexplicably just disappear for large periods of time. Now we have the Bucks involved in like three different things. Which, you know, is fine. And, um, you know, we'll see who comes out of this. I don't really have a prediction. Who knows? I mean, we don't even know who the AEW Tag Team Champs are going to be later on in the show. You know, with Aussie Open and FTR. So, are we going to set up another Bucks FTR match? Uh, maybe. Might be a little soon for that. But I wouldn't be stunned if that's the direction they go. Phoenix has this international title now by accident. So I don't know if you want to put the Lucha Brothers in a situation where they're facing FTR. Um, Do the guns steal a pin? A possibility. Or do they run with this Orange Cassidy hook team? Ricky Starks versus Wheeler, Utah. This match was the classic Tony Khan. Let's add a pay per view match at the last minute. Uh, Pay per view ad. I think at the end of the Texas death match, I think they might have been a little low on time and they didn't really give a chance for the Wheeler-Utah-Ricky Starks angle to properly marinate at the end of collision. If you weren't really paying close attention or you changed your channel because you knew the show was about to end and were flipping on a college football game or something, you may have missed that they started to have a little interaction there. I think it maybe it was supposed to be something that was uh, more obvious if they had more time but um, at any rate, they did a second angle on Dynamite and set this up. And I think this, you know, Ricky Starks is going to win this match. I think he's going to win the match and I think he should win the match. And I think that's good because after taking the two losses, the singles losses to Danielson after beating him in the tag, you know, this is a perfect opponent for Ricky Starks to get his heat back because it's the bottom guy in the Blackpool Combat Club. It's it's the guy who, um, obviously there's, they would hope that Wheeler Utah becomes something, and they've 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 been slowly building him, of course. But right now, he's the perfect guy for Ricky Starks to beat in that group, who is still loosely, you know, who's still not loosely, but directly connected to Brian Danielson, and Starks. Yeah, this is an obvious get your heat back win over one of Danielson's close allies. And Utah, what I'm trying to say here, and I'm fumbling over. Is he could easily eat a pin in this situation, and it does not matter. That's why it's a perfect opponent for Ricky Starks right now to get his heat back. So uh, that's Wrestle Dream. It's a great lineup on paper, I think, with a lot of interesting stories coming together. Uh, this is uh, the first pay per view in a while where I can look at it and say, wow, you know, everything is so well built, nothing feels like it's slapped together last minute or doesn't make a ton of sense or your classic Tony Khan headcanon matches where the stories might make a lot of sense to him but haven't been told well on screen. I don't see a ton of that here. I think we have a bunch of clearly defined stories and the good thing is a not a lot of these matches are super predictable. So that's good. You know, and 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 you know where where we see where where a lot of these stories go coming out of this pay-per-view. If we do get some pre-show matches, will we get some more New Japan talent? Because the reality is there's only one true New Japan talent on this Antonio Inoki tribute show, and that's Zack Sabre Jr. He's the only true New Japan regular on this show, and we were told we were going to get New Japan talent. Uh, Will Ospreay is essentially an AEW part-timer, let's be honest. He's involved heavily in the canon and the storylines of the promotion. And yes, he's a New Japan wrestler, but he's also an AEW part-timer, if we're being realistic about it. Katsuyori Shibata is a Tony Khan Universe wrestler. He's not a New Japan wrestler anymore. He is an ROH wrestler. So to me, he does not count as bringing in an outsider from New Japan. Even though, you know, there's obviously a New Japan history there. Kota Ibushi is not a New Japan wrestler, as we all know, and hasn't been for quite some time. And outside of that, there's no one else on this show where you could even make a stretch that we're bringing in New Japan talent. Now, New Japan has two Cork and Hall shows on this very same weekend where most of the crew and all of the big stars are already booked, right? You're not getting Okada. You're not getting Naito. You're not getting Tanahashi. These guys are all booked for the Destruction Tour and the Corkin Hall shows. But that doesn't mean that they can't bring in other New Japan talent. You know, every wrestler in the company isn't booked on these Corkin shows. For example, uh, Satoshi Kojima is not booked on these shows. Okay, he he. You know, and I don't know if he's booked somewhere else. He's been working a lot of other promotions. He worked earlier on the Destruction Tour. But uh, I don't see him booked. That's one name that immediately jumps out at me. Could they fly in Kojima, who has worked AEW shows before? You know, John Moxley, CM Punk. He's done a good job in both of those spots to come work a pre-show match. Um, you know, there's there's New Japan strong adjacent people that you can bring in. So, I don't know. I think it'll be a little disappointing if Tony Khan does this Antonio Inoki tribute show where he promised us that there'd be... New Japan talent involved and really the only true real New Japan talent that works the show is Zack Sabre Jr. What's, uh, what's Yuya Uemura up to? He just uh, lost the uh, the uh, the Feaster fired, right? In impact. Presumably still kicking around the United States. Look, there's options here. There's There's some options here. If there's a will, there's a way. So, but I'm not encouraged by uh, the fact that AEW has already told us that, you know, know, the Pawcat RJ City thing. They're pushing that pre-show that they're going to be hosting the pre-show pretty hard. Maybe there won't be any pre-show matches. Maybe there won't be any more New Japan talent. I think that might be, at least for me, um, a little disappointing. It's not going to kill the show or anything. The show looks good. But um and I guess we're gonna do this wrestle wrestle dream gimmick every year moving forward, right? As we crawl towards more AEW pay-per-views per year. Tony kind of shit on the idea that he's, you know, they're gonna do monthly pay-per-views, but I think inevitably, you know, whether they do twelve a year, or whether they do nine or ten a year, effectively they're going to expand the pay-per-view schedule. There's really no Reason not to at this point, uh, as they add pay per views and they continue doing well. Anyway, uh, that's Wrestle Dream, and uh, we're back after this. All right, we're back. Let's talk about this New Japan Destruction Tour. We will review the uh, show from Kobe World Hall in a moment, but first, I want to talk about the two Cork and Hall shows that uh, basically happened almost a month ago at this point that kicked off the tour the road to destruction on the 8th and the 9th in Cork and hall. I caught up on uh, everything that has made tape so far from the tour, which was really only a handful of shows. You had the two Cork and shows from September 8th and 9th. And then there was the, uh, the blue justice show. This was, uh, I believe blue justice 13 in Chiba looks like it drew about 1300 fans. Um, you know, that's that's always a show that you, you want to check out, the Yuji Nagata uh, Blue Justice shows. They're doing this six-man tag best of seven series, which I think is uh, an interesting thing, and a little bit outside the box for New Japan. And the main event of that was uh, Yuji Nagata, Master Wato, and Shota Aminu against the strong style threesome of Minoru Suzuki, El Desperado and Ren Narita, you know the former Open Neverweight Six Man Champs. The you know three guys that were kind of left uh, unitless during the, the the unit reshuffle when Suzuki Goon broke up, and uh, they're doing this best of seven series between these teams. And the first match ended in a thirty-minute draw. So I-, I think that's cool when you get outside the box stuff like that. Uh, this best of seven, which uh, gives, you know, a bunch of wrestlers who really don't have much going on storyline wise, a little bit of juice and something to sink their teeth into. And then you come out of the gate and give people a totally unexpected 30 minute draw. But uh, that show was on the 10th. The on the 8th and the 9th, we had the uh, Cork and Hall shows. And I really want to focus in on those. The 8th what we had here were, were two Zack Sabre Jr. television title defenses are really what I want to uh, spend the most time on. On the 8th, he faced uh, Rohe Oiwa, who, of course, we talked about this a couple weeks ago, but he is, is taking a very unusual excursion. He's taking his excursion to pro-wrestling Noah. He's not leaving the country. He's simply leaving the promotion. And he came back to challenge Zack Sabre Jr. for the World uh, New Japan World television title on the 8th. And he did have Kato Kiyomiya, who is now his tag team partner and mentor. If you recall, uh, they were teaming together at the end of the G1 tour, and everybody thought that was kind of conspicuous. A little bit of a slap in the face to Kiyomiya to not only not advance to the playoffs in the G1, but then to get relegated to prelim tag team matches with a young lion. Well, it turned out there was a method to that madness and a plan, and Oiwa has uh, returned to Noah with Kiyomiya for his excursion, a young lion, no more. And my God, does this guy look like the business? He looks like an absolute stud, an absolute star on these Noah shows. And he comes back to new Japan. I believe this was for the first time as, as a, uh, as a, as a full fledged, well, he's not really a full fledged member of the roster yet. Cause he's not back full time, but as, as not a young lion. And uh, he took on Zack Sabre jr. And I got to tell you, this went in my notebook. This was, uh, you know, low-level notebook, four stars somewhere in that range, but Zack Saber Jr. is on absolute fire right now. Every time I see this guy work, you know, whether he's popping up on Noah shows, whether it's uh, defending this uh, New Japan World TV title, which you know, when when he won that title, we were all kind of surprised because all the talk out of the company, and this wasn't just this was something that I reported but then they ended up just going public with it anyway and saying that this was a title that was going to be built around young talent, right? They publicly said that at one point, and then they go and put it on Zack Sabre Jr., who, you know, is pushing 40. The guy's 36 years old. Um, all right, maybe pushing 40 is a little rough. Um, 36, okay, here's how it works. 30 to 33 is early 30s. 34 to 36 is mid-30s, and I would say 37 to 39, you're pushing 40, so let's give Zach a few more months before we say he's pushing 40, and it works that way for every 10 years of the age bracket, by the way, okay, if you're 28, you're pushing 30, if you're 62, you're in your early 60s, okay, if you're, uh, if you're 91, you should just be surprised when you wake up in the morning. Like, that's how it works for every 10 years of these, you know. So, uh, anyway, Zach Sabre Jr., we all thought Ren Narita was going to win that thing, remember? Zach wins it, and we're like, what the fuck is this thing? It's turned out to be a super fun title. And this match rocked, and OIWA looks like a star. And, you know, like a lot of these young lions. You know, he's 24 years old. He's about, what? Two and a half years in, not quite three years in, and uh, his work is already just—you know—I—I'm I, going to talk about NXT later, and I—I—you I, know—I I know that we we kick WWE a lot and 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 pick on the PC a lot, but the difference in quality of the work between what the New Japan Dojo churns out and what the multi-million dollar performance center, turns out, in terms of, um, you know, you look at some of the 24-year-olds who are two and a half years in to the PC. A lot of them aren't even on TV yet. A lot of them are getting cut before they end up on TV, and a lot of the ones on TV are just dire. Fundamentals bad, Um, you know, trying things above their heads and not being able to execute them properly, which, by the way, that doesn't happen in New Japan. okay. It's uh, crab holds and forearm strikes, baby, until you're ready. Then maybe we'll let you throw a suplex, you know? So they're on to something. But here's the thing. In the dojos in Japan, particularly the New Japan dojo, and really all of them, for the most part, they're teaching you how to work. In the Performance Center, they're teaching you how to work, a very specific WWE style, but they're teaching you how to work. But they're more so teaching you how to be a television star. And that's the difference. They have all these resources. They spend all this money, and they teach the, and, you know, they make these people go out and and get their teeth fixed, and they make the women go out and get tit jobs, and uh, you know, they they put the guys in the gym for for four hours a day, so you know they're all fucking ripped, and they make these people, all these conventionally attractive people, look look, you know, great on television. And then maybe if you're lucky, they're competent in the ring. It's just a different mindset because it doesn't matter there. You don't need to be, you know, have a finely honed work in that company to make it to the main roster. You just need to be able to work their way. You know, uh, feed and bump if you're a heel and, and you know, uh, have some signature moves if you're a baby face and, and make sure you sell your ass off because everybody sells their ass off in WWE. That, that's you know an obvious thing, um, you know. And 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 you know work there. That's all they're concerned with. And then you see a guy like Oiwa who's two and a half years in. And if you stuck him in NXT right this second, he'd be the best worker in uh, you know on the show. Who aura who isn't someone who's. You know, I'm probably forgetting someone who's currently in NXT who's like a 13-year pro or something, you know, that's uh, 38 years old and, and and really should be on the main roster. But you get the idea. I'm talking about he he'd be the best worker out of someone who's considered a rookie or a trainee or someone, you know, of that ilk, without question. And it's just stunning, you know, particularly when they shed the young lion— uh, deal, and they're allowed to really spread their wings. Now we know these guys are good workers when they're lions, but they're, they're they have to keep it basic. But uh, yeah, this was an excellent, excellent match, and Zack Saber Jr. has just been on fire. And he followed it up the very next night because on the ninth, he wrestled Satoshi Kojima for what was supposed to be the Young Guy title. A 36-year-old defending it against a 53-year-old. And Satoshi Kojima is now 53 years old. 53. 53. And I don't think his work has declined at all from when he was 43 years old. When we started this show, he was like 41 or 42 years old. And we used to marvel at how good he was then. He's now 53. And he's still tearing it up, whether it's in NOAA, whether it's in All Japan, whether it's in New Japan, whether it's in AEW. This guy hasn't shown the decline yet. It's coming. It has to come at some point. And I didn't think this match was as good as the OIWA match, but I'd go about four stars on Saber OIWA. I'd go about three and a half or so on uh, Saber Kojima, thinking about it. But, uh, man, Cozy is just, you know, most of you know he's one of my favorite wrestlers of all time. Love the guy. Uh, Everything I want, pro wrestler. Great heel. He hasn't worked heel in a long time, so a lot of people don't know. But a great heel. Go find his heel stuff. It's it's uh it'd be interesting to watch if you're a newer fan. Like if you're someone who came in and discovered New Japan during their last boom, right? You've never seen Kojima work as a heel. And I think you should go find that stuff. In fact, maybe for match of the week I'll do some I'll look I'll find some Kojima match where he works heel but um, you know and then as a baby face I mean just heart and guts and desire that comes through in his work that always comes through in his work he shows fight and he hit you with that western lariat and it is over baby that's it he has protected that shit a disciple uh, looked up to Hanson Has protected that shit. The strongest arm. So Sabre back to back nights. And then. The back end of that show. On the. uh, On the ninth. Saw a trios title defense. Okada, Tanahashi, and Ishii defeated. I love this team. Hiroyoshi Tenzan, Togi Makabe, and Tiger Mask. Dustin, those guys off for a title match. Again, I love shit like this. Came out of nowhere. Why would they book this? These guys have barely wrestled this year. Tenzan and Makabe as they slow it down. Tiger Mask is off in CMLL wrestling El Satanico in lightning matches. This is what these titles should be used for. Random ass... Three-man teams going after the champs. I love that shit. And let me tell you something. It over-delivered. This match was way better than it had any right to be. You got Hiroyoshi Tenzan, Togi Makabe, and Tiger Mask. Three guys who 15 years ago were working the top of the card. And you put them in a semi-main event in Corican when they know they don't have many of those left. The working shoes were on, baby. The working shoes were on. This wasn't Tiger Mask. In an opening match. Watching his young lion partner take a pin. And mailing it in. Throwing a stamp on it. No. They worked. Even Makabe. My favorite slacker. I've been doing the Makabe bump counter for years. No. They put in effort here. This match is way better than it looks like on paper. And it's a cool little deal to keep Okada busy while he's not in the title mix for this uh, Wrestle Kingdom cycle. And let me tell you something about Okada as I watch him. He is starting to come across and he's starting to convey the aura of a legitimate Japanese legend. He comes down in that robe. He takes that robe off and he stands there and you're like you're like holy shit. I'm looking at a fucking legend. Kazuchika Okada is a fucking legend. You know, even when he was winning all those titles and he was, you know, the ace of the company, we still kind of looked at him as like this 27-year-old kid. And he came across as even though he was the top star in the company and the Aces, as kind of humble, right? Like that he so like still he came across like unassuming. Like he had fire when he needed it, don't get me wrong. But there was always that hint of awkwardness And that uncomfortableness that you sensed that he had in his own skin to some degree. And that made him charming. That made him even more likable. Because he has never come across like this cocky, entitled. You know what? He's never come across like his gimmick. He's never come across like the Rainmaker. And the whole idea behind the Rainmaker was a rich, entitled, cocky, everything handed to him. That's the whole point, the dichotomy between Okada, the office boy, everything handed to him, money falling from the sky, every opportunity, and Naito, the hero of the underserved, the forgotten, the ignored, the working man, and that was the whole essence of the rivalry, but yet, Okada, despite having that gimmick, has always come across a little awkward, a little uncomfortable in his own skin, but not enough to where it like destroyed the aura. Like a charming goofball. That'll fuck you up. But now, he disrobes. And you're like, this guy's a fucking legend. I'm watching a fucking legend. He's 35 years old. You know, I've talked about this many times. This podcast, we grew up with Okada. This podcast debuted the same month Okada's push began. And as he grew, we grew. And here we are. Big, fancy, niche podcasting legends. You should see the shit-eating grin on my face when I say that. That's right. I'm a niche podcasting legend. And here's Okada, 35 years old. Guy's a fucking legend. And it just emanates from him when you see him in the ring. Like, that guy's a fucking legend. That's Kazuchika Okada. That is that motherfucker. I'm all fired up. I want to see him hit a fucking Rainmaker and win that title again. That's what I want. Strap him up. Do you know how lucky we are? Do you know how lucky we are to have lived when this guy was on top? And he's entering the legend phase. He is. He's a legend now. He don't come across awkward anymore. He doesn't come across uncomfortable in his own skin. Yeah, I remember when uh, he had already won the IWGP title once or twice by this point. And I had a wrestler from New Japan tell me, you know, I'm not going to totally open up our locker room and and reveal what goes on back there. But you'll never believe how humble this guy is. And I'm not going to say the specific things that he does. But you'll never believe how humble this guy is when he's the top guy. And we're all making money because of him. Someone told me that from the company. And this was into one of Okada's championship runs. This wasn't young boy Okada. This was Okada who was being pushed as, as along with Tanahashi at that time, the top star in the company. You know, right in the midst of when Tanahashi was... Um. You know that rivalry, where which was designed for Tanahashi to get Okada over at his level, and um, with no disrespect to the Ace of the Universe, Okada surpassed him. He did. Maybe some people don't want to hear that, but all credit to Tanahashi, and Tanahashi elevated himself in the process as well. What a great era of pro wrestling that was. And and here's Okada, a fucking legend. So you know what? When he's in there defending the never-open-weight six-man titles against three guys from you know a couple generations prior, you, I'm, yeah, I'm locked in. Yeah, I'm locked in. Why would I skip that? Shame on you if you skipped it. You missed a good match too. You know what? Don't go back and watch. You don't deserve it. Skipping Okada. What do you think you are? you will skip the Rainmaker. I'm sure when I'm on my deathbed, if I'm lucky enough to be on one, I really don't want to die suddenly. Um, at some point, I'll think about pro wrestling. Might not be my top priority in that moment. But, uh, at some point, I'll probably think about my life and uh, my connection to pro wrestling and how grateful I am and everything that pro wrestling has done for me. Um, and all of the great things that I experienced in pro wrestling and seeing Kazuchika Okada wrestle live is going to be near the top of the list. You know how amazing that is! I saw that man win an IWGP title match in Madison Square Garden. Madison Square Garden. The house that Bruno built. People shit on that show. They're out of their fucking minds. Especially if you were at that show and you don't appreciate everything you witnessed at that show, shame on you. Shame on you. You saw one of the all-time greats a panthe- in the pantheon of all-time greats, a fucking legend, Kazuchika Okada, win an IWGP title match in Madison Square Garden. You were one of, whatever it was, 20,000 people, give or take, who can say that they saw that with their eyes. You saw the great Muda. You saw Jushin Thunder Liger. Madison Square Garden. I'll never forget that show. I'll never shit on that show. I am grateful. I saw Enzo and Cass do a worked shoot angle with the Briscoes. I was two rows away. Another great moment in wrestling history. I saw Kazuchika Okada wrestle A fucking G1 match against Hiroshi Tanahashi. And I didn't have to fly 19 hours to see it. I had to drive 90 minutes. Okada versus Tanahashi. I will remember that as long as I live. And how special that was. And that may have been the worst, quote unquote, match that those two guys ever had. I don't give a shit. I love wrestling. I love it. When it's great, I I love it. They did an elimination match in the main event. It was uh, United Empire versus uh, LIJ. And um, Jeff Cobb eliminates Tetsuya Naito to win the match. And then he cuts a great promo to set up the... Because uh, you know, he was challenging Naito and Kobe for the rights to the Wrestle Kingdom main event against Sanada. And uh, I thought Cobb's promo was phenomenal. Now, we all knew he had no chance against Naito. They're not main event in Wrestle Kingdom with Jeff Cobb versus Sanada. Let's be honest. That's not even a G1 main event. You know, Jeff Cobb versus Sonata is like the third match to come out the curtain, you know, in Sendai on night 11 of the G1. It's not a Wrestle Kingdom main event. Let's be honest. But Cobb, let me tell you, he cut the promo of his life, which again, we're not clearing the highest bars here, but not trying to bash Jeff Cobb. He's not known as a stick man. But uh, he cut a really good promo. And for a moment had people convinced that he's taking Naito out and Kobe. But uh, he was the sole survivor. These elimination matches. I, I enjoy these New Japan elimination matches because you never know what they're going to do. A lot of times the big stars go out very early. You know, it's it's uh, over the top. It's also pinfall submission. Um, You know, Survivor Series rules otherwise. And the other notable thing here, Callum Newman started with new Japan on this tour. He's, you know, brought in by Osprey. He's an Osprey, um, protege. And, uh, he's, he reminds you of us of a very underdeveloped Osprey from like 2013 or 2014, probably a little ahead of him at the same stage. Um, although Osprey got real good, real fast. So Newman has to really ramp it up if he wants to keep up with the Osprey curve. But uh, he was the first guy eliminated. You know, Shingo took him out. He's the, you know, Newman is the bottom guy for uh, United Empire and they've got 9,000 members. You know, they got the five guys that were in this match. Newman, Okan, Hanare, Jeff Cobb, Osprey. Then they got TJP and Akira and and uh, Aussie Open. You know, Jeff Cobb shouting them out. So they're still in the mix. So, you know, it's fucking, United Empire's like fucking uh, Wu-Tang Clan out here with, you know, 5,000 members. Leonard Skinnered, Uh, if you prefer, but uh, Newman is the new guy, and he was the first man eliminated, but, um, you know, I took a look at at, at what I could from him from this tour, and, you know, he's getting his feet wet. You know, he looked okay. He looked okay. Um, Give him some time, though. You know, it's, it's... Remember Dan Maloney and how totally nondescript and nervous and just not great he looked at the beginning of the super junior tour unsure of himself walking on eggshells it's a little tricky remember chase owens his first couple matches in new japan the nwa junior title match uh on one of those shows destruction and bpu or something where he kept doing uh arm ringers on his opponent over and over because he was so nervous he didn't know what moves to do it, it, you know it's tricky and uh Newman has looked better than those two guys did at the start of their New Japan uh, runs. But, um, you know, by the end of the Super Junior Tour, Dan Maloney looked like the guy that we were all, that all of us RevPro watchers and have, have been accustomed to for years. This super confident uh, fucking killer. And it just, the, the the switch flipped at some point. Once he got familiar with his surroundings and Built a little confidence and now he's drilling Maloney and he's just, you know, dropping F-bombs and kicking people's asses and is totally comfortable in his own skin at this point. Uh, Callum Newman is, uh, I am fully confident that he is going to be perfectly fine in New Japan. And it's just another example of Will Ospreay working hard to get somebody in. And, uh, and hopefully put them on the path to making serious money in the pro wrestling business. And we see what happens with Callum Newman. I, I am buying the stock. I've been a fan of his potential for a long time. A long time. He's what? 23 years old? Uh, you get the idea. He's 21. This motherfucker's 21. He is light years ahead of where... I thought he was like 24. He is 21. And he is way ahead. Of where Will Ospreay was at 21 years old. I mean, it is not. I mean, he's got the same body. He kind of looks the same. um, But he's way ahead of where uh, He's ahead of... The, I, I apologize when I said earlier. I thought he was like 24. That's when Osprey really started to take off. Um, he's 21. My God. New Japan got their claws in this guy. I mean, he's going to be a player. You know, save this. Slap favorite on this one. He's going to... You know, and they got oodles of time to make it happen. Did I just say oodles? Disgusting. Um, so anyway, that was the Cork and Hall show on the 9th. And then, um, you know, there really wasn't much else that hit tape. And then we, we flash forward a couple weeks to the 24th and Destruction in Kobe, which I thought was a pretty good show. Top to bottom. Wasn't a great show, but there was a lot of solid wrestling on the show, and uh, we will start at the top of the card. The main event was Will Ospreay defending the United States title, which he is now deeming the UK title against Yota Suji. Now Yota Tsuji, they bring him back. He immediately gets is being put in these massive title matches. He's immediately a featured player in the A block of the G one. Um, He's having matches against the top guys in the company. Sonato, Will Ospreay. um, And he's losing all of these matches. But here's the thing. It's so obvious that this guy is going to be a main event player and probably a gigantic star uh, much sooner than later. I I haven't seen one detractor of this guy. And also, by the way, he's already 30. He is the same age as Will Ospreay. In fact, he might be older. I'd have to check the, the, the birth dates. But just for a little perspective, this is not a guy who's – he's not Callum Newman. He's not 21 years old, okay? He's 30. So they are uh, uh, shitting and not getting off the pot here or how, however that would go. Shit or get off the pot. So I guess that would mean if they're they're shitting, right? I don't know. But um, yeah, he's been in the system since 2018. So this is his sixth year. He's going into his seventh year in the system. He had an extremely long excursion. He left in 2021 and spent all of 2022 abroad, Rev Pro. And the thing about him is he did a lot of bouncing back and forth to CMLL. In fact, I think, and you can fact check me on this, I think he even went back to CMLL to, didn't he go back to CMLL um, after he came back to New Japan, he came back to New Japan and did that angle to set up the match with Sonata. Then, I think he went back and, and, did, and, and finished up with CMLL and then came back and wrestled Sonata. Either way, he did a bunch of CMLL tours after he finished up with RevPro. After bouncing back and forth from RevPro to CMLL over the course of a couple years. And in this match with Osprey, he used some lucha. This isn't a dude who was sent to Mexico because the company asked him to go and he went through the motions and now he'll never incorporate lucha into his work again. This guy was doing lucha style arm drags in the opening minutes of this match with Will Ospreay, and then was doing lucha shit during the closing moments of this match, closing stretch. In addition to that spear that he's now gotten over, despite the fact he never wins, he's gotten that spear over. He he has unique offense. I don't know why I said it like Jim Ross. He has unique offense that uh, that you don't see other people do. And and he's got charisma for days. He's uh, got those big, fake, white teeth that everybody in NXT has. And he's got that great smile. And um, you know, he's charismatic. And the guy is destined for superstardom in New Japan. I, I firmly believe that. He's going to be a top guy. And... Uh, Will Ospreay had a tremendous match with him. I'd probably go about four and a half. Not quite match of the year levels, but close. And Suji, now look, clearly Ospreay was was driving the match. There's no doubt about that. You know, if you're watching closely, if you know what you're watching, he was driving that match. But, you know, a lot of cool shit. Like, you know, they're up on the top turnbuckle. And then... <laughs> You know, Suji's going to give him a Spanish fly and then they, they reverse it while they're up there. And then Osprey gives him the Spanish fly. Then there was that double stomp off the top from an angle that I've never seen before that Suji gave Osprey, and, and, you know, I'm not going to break down every spot in the match, but it, it was, you know, just a more than worthy main event. I mean, Suji has already challenged Sonata for the IWGP title and wrestled the champion in a G1. And now he's headlined in Kobe. He's headlined in Kobe. And this showed you 4,200 fans. You know, nice crowd in Kobe. By the standards of this year for New Japan. And, uh, you know, absolutely a match that you should go out of your way to see. If you want to, you know. And and they're not waiting around. You know, Suji's 30. So, they're establishing him with the top players right now. Because that push is coming. You could argue it's happening already. Naito beat Cobb as we knew that he would. Good match. Not a great match. I'd go about three and a half. Um, Good match though. Good match. And Naito at this stage with the knees and everything else. You know, look. I wrote about it in my August um, notebook roundup. Where Naito was my wrestler of the month. Because nobody has been better... In the big tour closing G1 matches historically, than Tetsuya Naito. He's number one. He might not be the guy who, you know, when you're in Sendai or you're on some random tour stop on the G1 and he's wrestling a semi main event against some guy who's going to finish with four points. He's not the guy who's going to go out there and have banger after banger like Ishii or Osprey or, you know, um, or yeah, Shingo Takagi or, or, you know, from another era, uh, someone like, you know, the way Hiroki Goto or, you know, from 10 years, you know, he's not, or Tanahashi before. He's not, he's not that kind of guy and never has been in a G1. You know, you, you, would look at your G1 notes at the end of a typical G1 and he'd be like your seventh or eighth best wrestler in terms of great matches. And then he'd have a block deciding match or and a final, and they'd be the two best matches of the entire tournament. And, you know, that was the case again this past G1 where he was phenomenal in the mat in, you know, the playoffs. But a match like this at this stage of his career, cartilage on cartilage with those knees, 41 years old, this is what you're going to get. A nice little three and a half star match. But he's going to go out there at to the Tokyo Dome and try to have a match in year contender. I and mean, that, that, that's Naito now. And that's fine. I don't have any problem with that. Uh, Shingo and the Great Okan. Shingo wins the match and. I thought this was notebook material. Probably four, four and a quarter, somewhere in that range. Maybe the best Great Ocon. Now look, I'm thinking about this. And I probably enjoy the Great Ocon more than most people. And I'm trying to think. I don't usually have great recollection for stuff like this. Was this the best Great Ocon match I've ever seen? I know he's had... Just singles matches. You know he had. Didn't he have a really great G1 match with Will Ospreay. This might be the best great Ocon match I've ever seen. And I enjoy his work more than most. I'd have to look back in my notes. I'm probably forgetting stuff. Um. But yeah, you know, and Shingo's a guy who, when he's given an opportunity to be in a big singles match in New Japan, he always delivers. So, Shingo wins that one. Tag title match, Bishimon defeats TMDK. Hiroki Goto, I think, got injured at some point on the tour. Or maybe in this match. Is he still injured? Let me double check that. Um, what am I looking at here? Goto... Oh okay, here we go. So let's see if Goto is working these Cork and Hall shows coming up the same day as the uh, Wrestle Dream. Those would be on uh, the 30th and the 1st. Do we have Goto on these shows? No, we do not. So yeah, at some point I knew he got hurt on this tour and he's he's out now currently. So um look this match was okay uh again i'd go somewhere three and a half range as they defeat tmdk and uh and retain the tag team titles so good stuff out of bishiman as usual show defeats taiichi king of pro wrestling so show is the new king of pro wrestling the stipulations were no time limit and all of the stable mates were handcuffed at ringside now This wasn't much of a match. It was more a backdrop for Yoshinobu Kanemaru turning on just five guys and joining the House of Torture. So this was an angle disguised as a match. That's what this was. Um, As just a match, it was horrid. You know, it was awful. It was, uh, you know, modern show with the wrench and everything else. But um, Kanemaru bouncing around every unit in New Japan. He's now part of House of Torture where I think he's actually probably a better fit, Right? Then, with uh, just five guys, which is now just four guys again, the original four guys remember it was uh, Taka, Kanamoru, um, Taichi, and who was the uh, and Duki. Then Sonata joined, it became just five guys. Now Kanamoru's out and they're just four guys again, but not the original four guys because it's Sonata instead of Kanamoru. So they had the just four guys t-shirts, then they became just five guys and made the just four guys t-shirts obsolete. Now the just five guys t-shirts are obsolete and now they have to print up more just four guys t-shirts. Unless they add another fifth guy. Yuya is coming back soon. Could he be the new member of just four guys making it just five guys again? There's been some speculation there, we'll see. And then uh, the rest of the show was the undercard stuff. Bad dude Tito, who is in tremendous shape. Oh my God. This guy's fucking... He's been taking his new Genics. And Zack Sabre Jr. Uh, took on Okada and uh, Big Tom-ish. And you might be surprised to know... That uh, Zach Sabre Jr. and Bad Dude Tito won that match. You would think that Bad Dude Tito was there to take a fall. No, sir. Uh, Yo and Leo Rush. You know, they're keeping Zach strong is what it is. Because, you know, he did. They made it official. I kind of blew that off. But um, he came out and challenged Osprey for the U.S. title at the Copper Box. Royal Quest 3. Or whatever number that's on. I think it's 3. And uh, Osprey accepted. So Sabre's been, you know, racking up wins left and right as they build him up. And he's probably losing to Brian Danielson on, on Sunday. But uh, anyway, Leo Rush and Yo defeat Hiromu and Bushi. Leo Rush wins that with the final hour. He's working these tours, and he's looking good, and they keep pushing him. So good for Leo Rush. We had... Um, Bunch of Bullet Club dudes, Gato, Coglin, Kid Chase Owens, and David Finley against Jado, Fantasmo, Hikaleo, Tamatanga, Tangaloa. I got to be honest with you. I have no interest in that match, and I didn't pay much attention. I don't remember a thing. I may have paid attention. My eyes may have been glazed over, and I don't remember because I don't remember anything about that match. That absolutely is a match where if it was happening in my backyard, I'd shut the blinds. Um. Oh, yo, Dookie, Sonata, and Taka defeat Dick Togo, Yujiro, and Evil, okay? Taka scores the pin. He pins Dick Togo. Taka. What a curveball that was. When's the last time Taka won a fall? Paging Chris Samsa. Sportaprowrestling.com. Fucking A, man. I gets more plugs from Kevin Kelly. Kevin, throw us a bone, my man. I know I'm not the one sending you the notes. Um, when's the last time Taco won a fall? He always, he always loses. So again, I like that they did this. You know, it felt different. And we talked about him earlier Drilla Maloney and Clark Connors. They pick up a neat and tidy win over Tiger Mask and Kevin Knight. And, um, it was Drilla Maloney with the full clip. He beat Tiger Mask, not Kevin Knight. Uh, which, I mean, you know, honestly makes sense. Because um, you know, Kevin Knight's a guy who they are uh pushing to uh to some degree and he's getting a title shot. On the on the destruction in Ryugoku with Kushida. Against the aforementioned Drilla Maloney and Clark Connor, So, Tiger Mask ate the fall there. So, as we look at the show in Ryugoku, Kukugan, or Kugakan, or however you pronounce that. Here's how I pronounce it. Sumo Hall. Can't mess that up. That'll be on the ninth so a little early to preview that guess we could have done uh did it next week but i was talking about this tour today so i'm doing it now what are you gonna do about it what do you gotta say about that Creech? Um, okada tanahashi and ishii defend against the motor city mach- machine guns and josh alexander this is exactly what i'm talking about earlier this is the kind of cool off the wall shit that i want to see with these titles Singles match. If this were a Gabe Sapolsky show, this would be grudge match or special challenge match. Let's go with that. Special challenge match. Tangle Loa takes on Chase Owens. And I know you're all super excited about that one. Cannot wait. Champing at the bit for Tangle Loa versus Chase Owens. We already mentioned the War Dogs. Clark Connors and Drilla Maloney against Kevin Knight and Kushida for the junior tag titles. Kushida's never even in Japan. I don't know what the deal is with him. He's almost back because they feel bad for him or something. Um, so I don't, I don't feel like this will be a title change. But who the fuck knows? I, yeah, it, it, who knows with those titles? But I feel like Connors and Maloney should win the match. Lij United Empire eight man typical. None of these dudes have a big match for this show, so they're all going up against each other. Naito, Yota, Suji, Shingo, and Bushi against Callum Newman, the Great Okan, Hanari, and Jeff Cobb. Interested? I, I mean, I, I assume there's a, there's a chance that Callum Newman eats another pin here, like he was the first guy out of the elimination match. But I'm going to keep an eye on him. I want to see how he does at the end of this long tour. Uh, the the six man. Tag team best of seven series. We're on match seven. As they've been doing these things all tour long. We talked about earlier. So Watto, Aminu, and Nagata. Against Desby, Minoru Suzuki. And, uh, and, and Ren Narita. Now. If you want to know what's going on. In terms of. Uh, this is the final match of the series. So let me get you caught up. On. How that has been going. So we've got. Pull this up. What would be the best way to do this? Um, or is this match number? This isn't, is this match number seven? Let me check the New Japan site. The on air lack of preparation that you are accustomed to with this fine program that you're listening to. It is the, uh, best of 7 series final according to the new japan website but is there something i'm not understanding about this um cuz i i'm only seeing results for like 3 matches i don't know i don't care they're having another match at uh in their best of 7 series that uh, that is finishing even though it, this is only match number 4 for some reason so i'm sure the swink or uh is going to correct me and and explain to me what the hell is going on here cuz I don't I don't know what's going on. I'm perplexed and confused. Um what else is on this fucking show? Oh, the other uh War Dogs, Coglin and Kid defend the other set of tag team titles, New Japan Strong Openweight Tag Team Title Defense against uh El Fantasmo and Hiku Leo. Then we have a three-way for the junior title, Hiromu defends against Speedball Mike Bailey and Leo Rush. And uh, look, that has a chance to be pretty great, right? And then a never-open-weight title match. David Finley, yes, he's still that title holder. He defends against Tama Will that feud ever fucking end? Does the world really need these two guys to continue having matches? And forgot, I am begging David Finley to just win that because if wins, they're wins, then David Finley's going to get another. I, just enough. Enough. And then Sonata defends against Evil. Lumberjack match. There is growing. Not speculation. But there's a growing movement of people who think Evil is winning this. And going to the Dome against Naito. I got to tell you. I can't completely discount that possibility. Be funny. It's a funny outcome. Could happen. I, You know. And I got to be honest. I have to tell you. I don't know if I have a, a a preference between Sonata or Evil in that match. To me, it's like, you know, obviously Naito and Sonata have a chance of having a better match because Evil's gonna it's gonna be House of Torture shit. Um, <laughs> but I'm not excited about Sonata in the main event of that show. How could you be? So fuck it. Put Evil in there for the meme. You know what? I'm rooting for Evil executive decision we're back after this All right, we got a few more topics to get to before we wrap up the show we're going to preview the NXT No Mercy show on Saturday and then we're going to talk about a couple of the WWE releases that were made after we published the podcast last week that would be Icky Manjiro and Matt Riddle and then we also have to talk about the career of Bart Sawyer who passed away. uh, He didn't pass away last week, like I said earlier. He died on... When did Bart Sawyer pass away? He passed away on September 12th. So a couple of weeks ago, Bart Sawyer passed away at the age of 57, and we will talk about his career first. Uh, As far as that Best of Seven series in New Japan, I took a closer look at that. Uh, As of this recording on late Thursday night slash early Friday morning, there were only three matches in the books. They are, in fact, having the final match on Destruction in uh, Sumo Hall uh, next week. The other three matches that I was perplexed by that I could not find simply haven't happened yet and are going to uh, continue to take place on the current tour that is happening. I don't know why I was so confused by that. But uh, while I took my little break there, I looked that up and got that all straightened out. So uh, with the one draw that they have already done, uh, you would think that the seventh... There's got to be another draw in there, right? Um, I don't... uh, I'm not sure what the other results have been on the other three matches. But uh, you would think that they're going to ensure that the final match is uh, dramatic with a tie... To ensure that uh, you know, we get the tie-breaking match in the seventh match at, at on the final match of the tour in Sumo Hall. So the first match, they did in fact have the 30-minute draw on the Blue Justice show. Then in Fukuoka, Strong Style won match number two. And then match number three, which was uh not taped, did not air on New Japan World, in Nagoya, the uh Wato, Nagata, Shota Aminu team won. So right now, it is 1-1 going into match number four. So uh, I guess they would have to have, if there's three matches left, one more draw in there somewhere to have these guys, to have these two sides going into the final at two matches apiece. Or I guess what they could do is have uh, one team be up three matches to two and have... The have one team in a position to clinch it up and win four, two, and one over the other, or have the other team come back and tie it at three, and then have the series end in a tie. but I think that's less likely. Um, so one of these next three matches coming up, I suspect they'll do another draw and uh, and then, you know have the deciding match in sumo Hall. at any rate, Let's move on to NXT. You know how much I love NXT. And I love the fact that Rich Kreech has to come back from uh, wherever he is, the North Pole or whatever the fuck, and immediately review an NXT premium live event upon his return to uh, this program. If he ever does come back, maybe Rich Kreech has just skipped town. Maybe he has just skip town never to return maybe he'll stay in in the netherlands or wherever he's at i i keep thinking it's the netherlands he's in norway they both start with n i think they're in the same time zone um two wildly different cultures i would think so i'm probably offending every single norwegian and dutch person listening to the show if alistair overeem is listening right now i apologize sir um all right let's talk about this NXT no mercy so i am a complete psychopath in between the last segment that i recorded and this segment of the show i watched 5 weeks worth of nxt 5 weeks 5 one month and one week. To prepare for this review that I'm probably going to blow through in 12 minutes. That's the kind of dedication you get around here. Listen, I work hard. I have to say, the last five weeks of NXT weren't nearly as bad as um, NXT is typically. Now, to be fair, I did fast forward through some of the matches with who I know are horrible wrestlers. I fast forwarded through a lot of the pre-tape segments. So really, when you're only watching the best stuff, it's amazing how much better these shows come across. But uh, at any rate, I am prepared to prepare you for a NXT PLE that I suspect the vast majority of you will never watch anyway. That's what we do around here at 4.16 a.m. Pre-show match. That Rich will not watch. Blair Davenport will take on. Kelani Jordan. Next up. British round rules for the Heritage Cup. You know I wrote about. Noam Dar's Heritage Cup match against Nathan Fraser. In my August notebook roundup. I think the Heritage Cup stuff is the best stuff on NXT. I love the Heritage Cup rules. It's, it's sort of like British rounds with a twist. It's best two out of three falls. You win two falls, it's over. If it goes the full six rounds. If there's a DQ or a knockout, it's over. There's six rounds. Um, I think uh, six three-minute rounds. Is that what it is? Something like that. But uh, it'll be Noam Dar taking on Butch. Butch, of course, won the NXT Global Heritage Invitational, which was a little mini G1-style tournament to determine... Who the challenger would be for this uh, Heritage Cup match. Butch was in Group A. And he defeated Tyler Bate in the deciding match. Uh, not quite the level of match you would expect. Or, or that we had seen from those two in the past in previous eras of NXT. Good little TV match though. Butch went undefeated in the block. Scored 5 points. 2 wins and a draw. He had a draw with Axiom. As I said, he beat, defeated Tyler Bate in the block-deciding match, and he beat Charlie Dempsey. Charlie Dempsey with the 0 for, He lost to all three guys, finished in last place. Uh, so Butch advanced to the final where he took on Joe Coffey, who won Group B, besting Nathan Fraser and Duke Hudson, who had four points each. And poor Akira Tazawa, 0-3. Not only did Akira Tozawa go 0-3 in this thing, okay? But Akira Tozawa, two of his matches, two out of his three matches in this in this tournament here. I was excited about this. I'm like, oh, I get to see some Akira Tozawa. They never booked the guy. Two of his three matches aired on NXT Level Up on Peacock. That's what they think of Akira Tozawa. This was billed as an international tournament. So I feel like they had to shoehorn a Japanese guy in there. What's Akira Tozawa up to? Nothing. All right, let's bring him in. Have him do job duty and have him do those jobs on NXT level up. And the one match he had on TV on NXT proper, he lost in a squash So in case you were wondering what Akira Tozawa is up to, Dragon Gate fans, close your ears. Although they're used to it by now. That's what that's what Akira Tozawa is up to in this company. And let me tell you something. The stuff that I saw, the one match that he had, the short match on TV, and the highlights that they showed from one of the matches on Level Up, they didn't even bother showing highlights of the other. He looked really good. He's in tremendous shape. He just has a great spark in the ring. He just, you know, they don't care about him. And I'm sure he's making, you know, six figures. And he loves America. And he lives here now. So I can't begrudge the guy. You never hear a peep out of him. He don't complain. And I follow the Rich Crates rules. If you don't complain and you enjoy your your time in WWE, whether you're pushed or not, I I can't begrudge you. It's these people who sign and then re-sign with the company. Complain about their push. Complain about their spot constantly. Uh, Those are the people that can fuck off. Don't re-sign. Or I don't want to hear it. Akira Tozawa seems happy. He don't care. He knows it's a work. It's disappointing as a fan. I'd like to see him do more. They didn't even put his matches on TV. And in Group A, Charlie Dempsey was on level up twice. In fact, by the time the block deciding matchup, when Butch and Tyler Bate... Had their block deciding match. They didn't even have the result on the table for the Axiom Charlie Dempsey match, which took place because I think Level Up airs on Tuesdays, the same on Peacock, the same day as NXT airs on TV. And I guess it airs afterwards when it finally streams. So they were kayfabing it, even though I'm sure it was taped. probably have to double check that I don't care enough to do it right now my point here is they had Butch and Tyler Bate have their block deciding match before they even made the audience aware of who won the Axiom Charlie Dempsey bout so when they put the table up those two guys still only had two matches in the books and they were already celebrating Butch advancing which I thought was like "Eh, we don't care about these other two assholes they don't have enough points anyway And we're not even going to bother putting their result on the screen. And I'm just thinking to myself, what kind of TNA bound for glory bullshit is this? I mean, geez. We couldn't have had those guys have their match before Butch and Tyler Bate had their match, or at least just throw the result up. How many people are watching level up anyway? Over, under 10,000. I'll take the under. Over under 5,000. What's the average viewership for for level up? Is it over or under 5,000 people a week? I say it's under 10. Five? I don't know. Still might be under. Joe Gagne. Me every now and then. And 4,998 other absolute losers. That's who's watching NXT level up every week. Your two favorite Joes. Though so most of you probably have Samoa over me and Gagne. So it's going to be Butch and Joe Coffee in the final. And then Butch wins that one. And he moves on. And will take on Noam Dar. You know what was funny? Was the uh, Global Heritage Invitational G1 knockoff here that they had. Wasn't contested under the Heritage Cup rules. They were just straight up 12-minute time limit matches. That's right. You heard me right. 12-minute time limit matches. No rounds. No best of three. So you're winning this tournament wrestling traditional singles bouts with a 12-minute time limit to earn a spot in a Heritage Cup match which has the funky rule. I don't know. What am I doing here? Carmelo Hayes will defend the NXT title against Ilya Dragunov. That could be good. Braun Brekar takes on Baron Corbin. That has actually been positioned, in my view, as the biggest match on the show. They got the closing angle on the go-home NXT, which aired after the Carmelo Hayes-Ilya Dragunov contract signing. And uh, Brekar is still... For all intent and purpose, in my view, based on what I just saw, watching five hours of this shit, position is the top guy in the brand. Becky Lynch defends the NXT women's title against Tiffany Stratton in an extreme rules match. Lynch went to NXT, won the title, popped a big rating, you all know that. The match was okay, nice little three-star match. And uh, Straton gets another shot at her title here to earn her title back in an Extreme Rules match. Dirty Dom, which is what we're supposed to call him now, defends the NXT North American title against Trick Williams. Trick Williams won a four-way match to earn this title shot against Dom. And this was a very good four-way match. Let me see if I can. uh... It was uh, Dragon Lee. I just watched it and I can't remember who was in it. It was uh, Dragon Lee, Tyler Bate, who just lost in the Heritage Cup tournament. And then they just put him in a four-way number one contender match for a different title on the show, which is, uh, you know, some interesting booking. I'm not going to get worked up about it because it's NXT and I'm I'm not going to do that and Axiom were the other three men in the match. Trick Williams, you know, I didn't really like the finish because they did a fluky finish. They did all this hot action in the match, and you know, Axiom, Dragon Lee, and Tyler Bate are are all excellent wrestlers, okay? But they did a gimmick finish where Trick Williams bonked heads with one of the dudes who was on outside on the apron. That guy fell out of the ring. The other guy got knocked out of the ring. And then Trick Williams, who was unconscious, then fell on top of the last remaining guy that was inside the ring and scored the pin. So they got him, you know, they got a WWE everything up in this company, but it was a really good match, uh, you know, borderline notebook and trick Williams. Look, um, you know, I've been on that guy for over a year. I, I still think he has more upside than Carmelo Hayes for the main roster. And they're finally giving trick a chance to, uh, get in there and wrestle longer matches and show what he could do outside of just standing in the corner for Carmelo Hayes. Carmelo Hayes is more of a total package right now. He carries himself like a star. He, he's a much better talker. Although I'm not sure he's a much better talker. Trick Williams is a good talker. He doesn't get a chance to cut the kinds of promos that Carmelo Hayes gets to cut. But Trick Williams is taller. He has a better look. I think he, um, he's more moldable in my mind. I think Carmelo Hayes is what he is. He's been an indie guy for a while. We all know the deal with him. Um, you know, Trick Williams, I think, has uh, the higher upside than Hayes, who's pretty much at or near his ceiling at this point. Whereas Trick Williams, I don't, you know, I, I, he may never surpass Hayes, but I do think. The ceiling is there, and there's a chance that he surpasses Hayes and becomes a bigger star. I would, I would bet, I would buy stock in Trick Williams before I would buy stock in Carmelo Hayes. It's going to be cheaper stock, and it has a chance to, uh, to, uh, to be worth more in the end. Is what I'm getting at here. He takes on Dirty Dom for the NXT title. It's an interesting match because Dom stinks. We all know Dom stinks. Dom isn't any good. Um, all of his matches are smoke and mirrors. Uh, he's a guy who's never going to be good. Trick Williams is green as hell. So. I'm sure it's going to be a lot of smoke and mirrors. They're going to muck it up. But it has a chance to fall apart. So it's going to be an interesting match to watch from that standpoint. By the way. Dragon Lee is your special guest referee. Alrighty then. Um, Mustafa Ali was involved in this storyline. And then he just got fired in the middle of it. Same thing happened to Dana Brooke. Who was involved. Who was in the middle of a storyline on NXT. On these shows I just watched, and she just disappeared. Daba Kato as well. You know, he did a job to Tyler Bate. Well, he wasn't really in a storyline, but I got to see his final match probably ever. Can't see him landing anywhere. And then we've got uh, The Family, which is D'Angelo and Channing Stacks, two dimes of broken necks, Lorenzo, whatever his name is, uh, defending the tag team titles against three teams. All these teams had to earn a spot at the table over the last few weeks, and they did these terrible vignettes, these terrible pre tapes, you know, with the fake Italian, you know, the stereotypical Italian music that you would hear in the worst Italian restaurant in your town, and Tony D'Angelo doing his awful Saturday Night Live mobster impression. And the other teams are the Creed brothers, Humberto Carrillo, and Angel Garza. And Out the Mud. That's right. The name of the team is Out the Mud. Lucian Price and Bronco Nima. Two big guys. I watched them beat uh, Hank Waller and Tank, whatever the fuck his name is. What's the Tank guy's name? Let me see if I can find that. Tank Ledger. They're doing a Hank and Tank tag team. They're like hillbillies that wear cutoffs. It's going nowhere. I feel bad for them. They probably think they're going somewhere. They're going nowhere under that gimmick. Out the Mud won the match though. and moves on. They're managed by Scripps. Scripps. That's Reggie or Reginald for those of you who remember him from the main roster. The uh, acrobatic fella who then was a masked wrestler in NXT called Scripps. Doesn't wear a mask anymore. He's basically just Reggie, but he's still called Scripps. And he manages Out the Mud. I don't know what any of that means. But uh, they are part of this four-way for the tag team title. So that is your NXT No Mercy premium live event that I'm sure all of you will be forking over your $14.99 a month or whatever for the Peacock to uh, make sure you don't miss that one. All right, sticking with WWE, we had two more cuts that we have to discuss. Jiro, Icky Man Jiro, Kuroshio was cut. Can you believe he was with WWE for three years? Three years! Three years! crazy now they hadn't been using him. uh allegedly he just re-signed another three-year deal which we all know wwe contracts are basically rolling 90-day contracts and uh he was a victim of a cut so uh that three-year deal gets uh, set on fire and he gets paid for three more months uh basically he hasn't been on tv since last year he was a regular semi-right i can't even call him a regular lately He's been on Level Up after not being on TV for about six or seven months. He uh, last appeared on NXT proper last December. Disappeared for ages. I don't even think he was hurt. May have been hurt. I I didn't hear he was hurt. Uh, And then popped back up on Level Up where he's been doing jobs on Level Up basically all summer. Uh, And he's worked a couple of the uh, Largo Loop shows as well. But as far as appearing uh, on tape, he has uh, been on the losing end of a tag team match to Hank and Tank on Level Up, teaming with Quincy Elliott, who was also released. Uh, Then a week later, he lost to Damon Kemp on Level Up. These are all Level Up. He lost to Oro Mensa on Level Up in, uh, in August. And then on September 5th, he lost to Tavion Heights, And then on September 12th, he had his final WWE match, losing to Luca Crucifino. So uh, Giro doing jobs for all the stars over on Level Up, and uh, they let him go. Now, he will unfortunately best be known for two things on this run. Number one, his tag team with Kushida called Jacket Time. Why? Well, because he wears a jacket. And because Kushida does the Marty McFly gimmick and wears the vest, so uh, they dubbed these two Japanese men Jacket Time because they both wear jackets. Very creative. The creative minds in NXT are unmatched. And of course, his other gimmick, his other televised gimmick from a couple of years ago, where uh, he was basically uh, they they he was he was doing mukbang. Which, for those of you familiar with uh, mukbang, or mukbang, however you say it. This is where uh, people on YouTube gorge on enormous amounts of food. This is very popular and usually emanates from Korea. South Korea, of course. You're probably saying to yourself, but Joe. Jiro is Japanese. Why would they give this man a Korean gimmick? And my answer would be, what company are we talking about here? They're all Asian, who knows the difference? Is very likely what someone had to say when they gave Jiro the mukbang gimmick. He was also shown on TV with explosive diarrhea in a bathroom stall. So that's how his run went. Now I'm not a big fan of Jiro. I kind of liked when he signed because that meant he would no longer be popping up on pro shows that I that I wanted to watch because I don't like watching this guy. Uh, Wrestle One doesn't exist anymore, so I don't know. You know, he was working some All Japan before he went to WWE. And bouncing around, you know what remained of some of these other uh, Japanese groups. He doesn't really have a home to go back to, so I don't know what happens with him. But uh, he'll he'll get work in Japan, and he'll be fine from that standpoint. As far as Matt Riddle goes, I wouldn't touch that guy uh, with the proverbial ten foot pole. I wouldn't touch Matt Riddle with a thousand foot pole. Matt Riddle is going to he's not going to get booked in a lot of the indies that he was getting booked on before he signed because of all of the um speaking out stuff that's surrounding him and all the other weirdness and a lot of those kinds of trendy indies are going to stay away from him because uh those fans are just not going to have that. So, you know, I would expect lower level indies, uh the kinds of indies that um the non-trendy indies if he's going to get indie work. is not going to touch him. I would be stunned if AEW goes anywhere near Matt Riddle. He is a ticking time bomb. He is a ticking time bomb. You know, all of the... And, and, it, and it's not just Candy Cartwright when it comes to the allegations. He has other allegations, too, that kind of flew under the radar. So, and then there's a lot of other weirdness surrounding him. Whatever happened at the airport a couple weeks ago... A lot of the dark Twitter rumors, most of which I'm not even privy to, but I could put two and two together. There's you know, there's always been, you know, stuff's out there if you want to look into it. And he's just a guy who, uh, he's someone that I wouldn't go anywhere near. He's just a ticking time bomb. He's a PR disaster waiting to happen or potentially worse. So um, I would be stunned if AEW goes anywhere near Matt Riddle. Despite the fact that he's enormously talented. Now, New Japan was interested in Matt Riddle. Right before he signed with WWE. In fact, he was or booked for a tour. I think he was going to team with Jeff Cobb. In a World Tag League. I mean, I think he was booked. As I recall it. So, look, New Japan. They've, yeah, particularly when they're booking guys in Japan... They've looked the other way. They booked Mike Elgin long after everybody stopped booking him here. Uh, Rocky has attempted to book and has booked people for New Japan strong. Um, you know, he tried to sneak Marty Skrull in under the cloak of darkness. So can I write off New Japan? I absolutely cannot write off New Japan. I would not stun me at all if Matt Riddle ends up in New Japan. And, you know, I'm sure for if he can keep his nose clean, literally and figuratively, and... um. You know, and and stay out of trouble. I'm sure he'll have great matches in New Japan if that's the case. So that wouldn't surprise me at all. Uh, Some people have opined that Noah would be a great destination or a good fit for Matt Riddle. I have to agree. Again, it's Japan. And they're not so concerned with American controversies. In some cases, may not even be aware of them. And you know he's got you know Kurt Stallion is already there those guys have you know been aligned professionally in the past i think they've already been tweeting at each other and he would he fits the style of the promotion too you know he's not going to make WWE money in noah but noah you know by japanese standards is going to pay pretty well they they're not going to pay what new japan's going to pay but it's steady work i can absolutely see noah reaching out to Matt Riddle and, you know, trying to bring him in, especially if Stallion puts in the word. So, uh, I I would bet on Noah or New Japan and lower level and non-trendy indies. Because if you're one of these trendy indies, you can't book the guy. You can't do it. You know, the the trendier indies have kind of, you know, they get checked by the wokier fans and you can't get away with it. So, um, now Japan, they, they tend to look the other way with American controversies. Look at Trevor Bauer. You know, if you if you don't know who Trevor Bauer is, go ahead and Google. But be warned, the things he has been accused of are absolutely fucking heinous. Former Major League Baseball pitcher, a Cy Young winner a couple of years ago in 2020, one of the best pitchers in the game, uh, was signed a huge free agent deal with the Dodgers. Then the accusations started coming out. And it wasn't just one victim. Then multiple victims started coming out. All with similar stories of absolutely heinous, heinous stuff. Never arrested. Never charged. Never convicted. But. Due to the severity of the allegations. And due to having a past where. He wasn't necessarily criminal. But he was considered kind of an asshole. Again, Google is your friend here. I don't have time to get into the back history of... Of uh, of Trevor Bauer. But he was always kind of a sleazy guy. Kind of a shitty guy. But nothing beyond the pale until these allegations came out. Sexual in nature. And um, he had his contract terminated after... You know, a year, year and a half of... You deal with the union and you deal... But anyway, he had his contract terminated. And he's been effectively blackballed from Major League Baseball. No one's going to touch Trevor Bauer. And if you look up, you know, what the allegations are, you'll, you'll quickly see why. This is not your standard... I hate to frame it this way, but this isn't like your standard issue crime or... Even domestic violence or something that he's accused—it's just stuff that's truly heinous. Uh, So he's effectively been blackballed from Major League Baseball, but now he's playing baseball in Japan. He's a massive star there. He was an All-Star, and I think he won their MVP. (laughs) So, you know, it's you know they'll take on our problems in Japan. So I could most the point here is I can most definitely see Matt Riddle ending up with steady work in either New Japan or Noah. I don't know necessarily if he would go to any other group there because I'm not sure that it, the juice would be worth the squeeze monetarily for him to work anywhere else other than New Japan or NOAA. So, uh, speaking of NOAA, Katsuhiko Nakajima is leaving NOAA. And there was an article that just came out, Yahoo Japan, I believe, where he said he, he's been thinking about leaving for a couple of years now. And finally made the decision to do so. Now I don't know what his next move is. I haven't heard anything about his next move. Um, I would think that if he made the decision to leave. He has something lined up. Or maybe he doesn't. Shockingly he's. You know I know we joke about this. But uh, he's still shockingly young. Because he started at 14. He's 35 years old. Right smack dab in his pro-wrestling prime. And he's been with pro-wrestling Noah now. Either full-time or part-time since 2008. It's a long time. Look, he wasn't super popular there. He's a guy who rubs people the wrong way. He's a little intense. He's a bit of a prick. He had multiple incidents where he accidentally knocked out other wrestlers. Uh, There was one at a presser. There was one in a match. And um, he's a guy that a lot of older veteran shooters would refuse to do jobs for. Hideki Suzuki is one example. And, um, you know, not the most popular guy. Definitely, you know, has a bit of an attitude and a reputation for being a little unlikable. And things obviously weren't pleasant for him and Noah, particularly during the Muto era. And, you know, that's been documented by me. Behind our paywall. And in, and in other places. Now he's getting out. It's 35. I guess he says. Alright. Well look. If, if I'm going to make a go with this. In New Japan. Or maybe America. This is my chance. I, I don't. Think that WWE. Is a good fit for him. And I don't think he would do well there. I think that. You know, maybe two or three years ago, I'd say I'd love to see him in AEW, but I don't really have confidence that AEW would 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 use him or utilize him, you know, properly. I I just don't. Whereas a few years ago when I had more faith in AEW before, you know, it, it's... I don't want to do a whole Tony thing, but I just, I don't know. I just don't feel like, you know, I... I Ideally, I'd like to see him end up in New Japan. I think that's a perfect fit. You know, and I, I don't know the political. I'd have to think a little deeper who are his enemies there, who are his allies. Um, you know, it's uh Kensuke Sasaki. who is he? Does he have allies in the office there to put in a war? You know, I I don't know. You know, they've obviously used Nakajima before. Sporadically. I mean, you go back to um what year was that G1? 2016? I think it was 2016. And obviously he has worked some of the joint shows over the last couple of years. And you go back further than that. You know, um, uh, some of the other joint shows and all together nows and things like that in in the previous decade. You know, and so they, 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 they're not opposed to using them in spots. Would they hire them? I don't know. I don't know where else he thinks he's going to go. Is he going to go to All Japan? That I mean, that's possible too. All Japan, you know, don't look now. They're not very far behind Noah in terms of attendance and things like that. You know, Noah is owned by the more stable company and, you know, it, it, you know. But but ever since the MUTO retirement stuff ended, their attendance has not been great and All Japan's nipping at their heels in terms of attendance, so... Maybe he can get comparable money in all Japan, you know, and and continue working that Kento Miyahara program. You know, he already beat the guy once in a highly anticipated match, and um, you know, maybe the seeds were planted then. Maybe he was recruited. And now he maybe he jumps to all Japan and, and finishes the program at Miyahara. And Miyahara gets his win back on his home turf. So my gut's telling me he's going to all Japan. I'd like to see him in New Japan, but my gut is telling me he's going to all Japan. But I know nothing. And uh and I guess we'll see. I'm sure Rich and I will talk about this moving forward. Um, Last topic, Bart Sawyer passed away on September 12th at the age of 57. What is crazy about this is four days earlier, Brett Sawyer passed away. And these men were not related. There is no relation between Bart Sawyer and Brett Sawyer. Brett Sawyer, of course, is the brother of Buzz Sawyer. But no relation to Bart. Uh, The the, Brett Sawyer's last name was Woyan. Bart Sawyer. His name was Steven Stort. But there are similarities that go beyond having the same kayfabe last name. And they're a bit eerie and it's a bit eerie that they died within days of each other. These are two guys who were both undersized workers who were excellent wrestlers, but undersized, which hurt both of their careers, right? They both probably had their best runs in Portland, about a decade apart. Brett Sawyer in the early 80s, Bart Sawyer in the early 90s. They both became television job guys for WCW later in their careers, about a decade apart. Brett Sawyer in the early 90s, Bart Sawyer in the late 90s. They both bounced around what remained of the territories at the end of their careers, unable to match the success that they had very early in their careers in Portland. And then they both die within four days of each other. And I think, unfortunately, because of that, Bart Sawyer and Brett Sawyer are going to be confused by a lot of people moving forward. When you have two guys with similar names, with similar career paths, albeit about a decade apart, you know, that's kind of inevitable. People are gonna confuse these two guys. So uh anyway, Bart Sawyer passes away. He was trained by uh Bob Geigel in the uh what remained of the uh Kansas City territory there at the time, which by then, I think in the late 80s had already been renamed the World Wrestling Alliance, which was Bob Geigel's attempt to go national, much like Bill Watts when he, you know, renamed Mid South the UWF, and uh the Fullers when they when they, you know, rebranded the old continental slash southeastern territory as as continental. Um you know They rebranded Southeastern as Continental to make it sound more national. It was the same deal with, with Geigel, who renamed his territory World Wrestling Alliance in a very feeble attempt to compete with the WWF. And that territory, which was a very lousy territory, especially by that time, especially by the working standards, I mean, it was just a terrible territory. From that standpoint, really stood no chance whatsoever, you know. And they they tried to go into business with Vern Gagne. They tried to go into business with Fritz von Erich and formed this alliance. A promoter, you know, two other promoters who were who were dying at the time. And you know what happens when these promoters try to work together? It never works out. And then that tour territory, uh, the Geigel territory, uh, the Kansas City territory, eventually, you know, died in the late eighties or whatever. But that's where Bart Sawyer got his start. And from there he went to Portland and that's where he was doing the Bart Simpson gimmick. You know, his first name they shared, you know, the Bart. And it's hard to explain what a phenomenon Bart Simpson was at that time. 1990, 1991, 1992. You know, he came to the ring to the, 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 the Bart man theme, you know, a song, which was a novelty hit on the radio. And, um, you know he 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 got the bart simpson haircut and he and he acted like uh, hyper overactive you know and he was an undersized guy to begin with so he was basically doing a bart simpson type gimmick and it got over in portland and he had a nice little run there for you know he was in and out but for a number of years you know and that was probably the best singles run of his career and Portland obviously died as well a couple years after the Kansas City Territory died. So the place where he got his start and the place where he was actually getting over and achieving some success, they both were no longer options. He eventually ends up in Memphis in 1996. And this is where he was the first tag team partner of Dwayne Johnson, who was sent to Memphis by the WWF to uh, you know get some seasoning. And they paired Dwayne Johnson up with Bart Sawyer in a tag team. And it was Flex Cavana, which was Dwayne Johnson's gimmick and name in Memphis, teaming with Bart Sawyer. They won the USWA tag team titles twice. They won it in a tournament final. In uh, the Mid South Coliseum, they won a tournament to win the vacant titles. Uh, they then traded the titles with Bill Dundee and Jerry Lawler, so they had Dwayne Johnson working with Dundee and Lawler. And uh, Johnson eventually Johnson was only there for the summer. He was only with he was only in Memphis for a couple of months in the summer before WWF brought him back to debut him at the Survivor Series that year as as Rocky Maiavea. And uh, he essentially he teamed with Bart Sawyer and feuded with Jerry Lawler all the way, and he lost a loser leaves town match to Jerry Lawler at the end of his uh, Memphis run. Uh, after, along with Bart, you know, with Bart Sawyer, he won the tag team titles twice. They won them in the tournament final. They dropped them to Dundee and Lawler uh, a couple of weeks later. Won them right back from Dundee and Lawler a week after that held them another week and lost them for good to Brickhouse Brown and Reggie B. Fine, which was the team that they beat in the tournament final, you know, a month earlier to win the titles to begin with. So uh, Bart Sawyer and Flex Cavana had two USWA tag team title reigns that totaled, I think, exactly three weeks, which sounds like nothing but in Memphis. And I wrote about this in the match of the week because my match of the week was a uh, Bart Sawyer- Flex Cavana tag match from Memphis Television against the Punisher and Tony Falk. The Punisher went on to become Bull Buchanan in WWF. Tony Falk is a longtime Memphis wrestler. But uh, that was our match of the week last week behind the paywall. And it was in the midst of, I believe, the first two week tag team title run of Flex Cavana and Bart Sawyer. So. Bart Sawyer was the perfect guy to put Dwayne Johnson with as being someone who was super green because Bart Sawyer, again, was known as a steady, dependable, reliable, solid worker. So, you know, doing the Memphis Loop teaming with him and then working matches against Dundee and Lawler, I mean, that's as good of a crash course education you're going to get uh, as, as a green pro wrestler who they're trying to rush to the WWF and put on television right away because everybody knew Dwayne Johnson was a as blue chip as it gets. I mean, Dwayne Johnson was universally regarded as one of the best prospects and easiest to project superstars in the history of wrestling. Every single pundit, every single person inside the business knew that Dwayne Johnson was going to be a huge star unless he got hit by a bus. We all, you know, everybody knew there's not one person who was like, ah, eh, this Dwayne Johnson, I'm not sure. No, everybody knew. So he did a couple of months in Memphis. And if you go back and watch that stuff, the promos are awful. The work, I mean, you know, The Rock was never a great worker. He was he was he was competent, at times good. You know, he knew what he could do, he knew what he couldn't do. He wasn't a bad worker either. But um, yeah, the Memphis stuff is funny, though. But yeah, Bart Sawyer. Uh, ultimately, his claim to fame is going to be as the original tag team partner of Dwayne Johnson in Memphis, and you know from there. You know, as I said, he he became a television jobber in WCW. You know they were they were never going to push him, and then he. You know, by now it's the late nineties, and. There's no Portland to fall back on. And, you know, if this sounds familiar to the Brett Sawyer obit that I did last week, it's because it is. It's eerie. It's like the same guy 10 years later in a lot of ways. And from there, he just bounced around a lot of the Tennessee, what remained of the, the territories in Tennessee, whatever, you know, whether it was the USWA or whatever, you know, Memphis incarnation was out there at the time. He worked for uh, Burt Prentice's uh, USA Wrestling out in Nashville, Tennessee on the other side of the state, which was the Burt Prentice promotion that I, I think might, well, I don't think it's still active, but he ran that for like 20 years. Um, so he was always in and around Memphis and Nashville and Tennessee and some of, you know, because those Southern territories kind of outlasted all of the territory, the other territories around the country, for whatever reason, you know, Memphis had multiple different incarnations, you know, you know, Corey Macklin ran a version of Memphis and, um, you, you know, Memphis itself, you, you, there, you know, there, there's, if, if you look that stuff up, you know, when law, whether Lawler was involved or not, there was always something going on in Memphis in terms of wrestling, you know, um, you know, what was, what was, uh, I guess Corey Macklin's version of Memphis Wrestling. Let me look this up here. Yeah, it was called Memphis Wrestling. You know, I guess it wasn't. I was trying. I, I thought maybe it was something more creative, but uh, yeah. But Bart Simpson. Uh, Bart Simpson. But Bart Sawyer ended up there too. You know, he, he if if there was a promotion running in Memphis uh, or Nashville, he was probably a part of it in the uh, late '90s, early 2000s, working as Smart Bart Sawyer. Was one of his last gimmicks in wrestling. Uh, smart Bart Sawyer. Uh, he had a cup of coffee in TNA. Which of course. At that time in 2004. Was running in. Tennessee in Nashville. So he was a TV job guy. In the early days. Of TNA as well. And. You know. Worked. Uh, NWA Wild Side, Which was uh, Georgia. You know, he, he he was in and out of there as well. And then he had a stroke at a young age in 2004, and that was it for him. He never wrestled again. So uh, he had the stroke, he retired, and then uh, that was it for him in, in in pro wrestling. You know, it's crazy because last week I talked about how Brett Sawyer had this weird, I don't even know if any of it's on tape, wing tour in Japan at one point. And Bart Sawyer also did some wing tours, just like Brett Sawyer. It is spooky and scary how similar these two men are. It's just, you know, it's crazy. How their careers were like the same exact curve, almost exactly 10 years apart, and then they pass away four days apart. I mean, you gotta be kidding me. So, he had that stroke in 2004. It put him in a coma. And um, he did recover, but that was it. And then, um, you know, passed away at the age of 57 a couple of weeks ago. So, Bart Sawyer, born November 30th, 1965, died on September 12th. I think I'm done. I don't have nothing else for you. I want to thank the producer, Andrew Rich, once again for helping us put this episode together this week. Don't forget instant reaction live, Wrestle Dream on Sunday, this Sunday from Seattle. Rich Craich will return. That is the Rich Craich return to audio. The Wrestle Dream instant reaction live, $10 tier. And then next week, Rich Kreich will uh, finally be back after a two-week hiatus from the flagship. Take care.
0: Hi, I'm Case Lowe, co-host of the Open the Voice Gate podcast. The one question I'm constantly asked when it comes to Gate is
2: how do I get into the promotion? Well, stop asking and start listening to the Open the Voice
0: Gate podcast released every Wednesday on the Voices of Wrestling podcasting network. For exclusive news and show reviews, look no further than the leader in Gate coverage, Open the Voice Gate.